I'm Jekka and welcome to M Pavilion. My name is Jesse French. I'm the associate producer of M Pavilion and we're here to start part two of M Relay today. This is all about rituals. Um, rituals have been a theme of the program this year. We've had a nightly ritual that's gone on at sunset every evening. We commissioned Matthias Shakarnet uh, from Speak Percussion to compose a piece and he worked with Blue Bottle to make it work with the lighting. So that takes us into sunset uh, every night. We've also had midnight rituals and morning rituals and other ritualistic activity going on, whether it be a workshop or a talk. Uh, it was Chris Sanderson last year who described M Pavilion as a congregation, uh, and I think it's a nice way to describe it. We are being hosted today by Robin Archer, who is a singer, writer, artistic director, and a voice for the arts. Uh, I will pass on to her because she's going to take us off for the evening. Uh, sorry, the afternoon. Pass you on here. Thanks. Thanks very much, Jessie. Um, I'll begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land that we gather on today, people of the Kulin Nation, and pay my respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to any other First Nations people joining us today. The second leg of M Relay today is all about ritual, and joining the conversation today, and I'll just get them to stand up and wave at you when I mention them, contempor a contemporary artist working within and between the performing visual and media arts, David Pledger. There's David there. Um, yeah, hold your applause till the end. Thank you very much. Uh, Melbourne-based artist and designer, Susan Cohen. Susan, there's Susan. Uh, Oscar Schwartz, who is a researcher, writer and poet, exploring the impact of computer-generated poetry and what it means to be human. Yes, welcome, Oscar. Um, writer and journalist, Gabriella Koslovich. Thank you, Gabriella. Uh, contemporary Indigenous artist, Rico Rennie, who is on his way. Curator at the Australian Centre of the Moving Image, ACME, Sarah Tutton. There's Sarah. And an award-winning theatre designer, Richard Roberts. There's Richard. Please welcome our guests today. So I think you know the format. It was the same as the morning. We sort of pass the bat on and interview each other throughout the afternoon. But I'll set you off on a few thoughts about ritual. Um, ritual is about the origin of form. If we think of an arcane, formless world, in the basics of survival, hunting, gathering, shelter, eating, humans repeat themselves and repetition evolves and creates recognisable shapes and forms and thus rituals. They are shared and society evolves from a set of routine actions in similar manner and fixed sequence. These symbolic sets of actions can create community, but at the same time, they can exclude others from that community. I have a friend who's good Catholic parents, although not practising, sent her to a Catholic primary school thinking that she'd get a better education at a private Catholic school. And when she got there, she was about six and she'd never been to church in her life. And she was totally alienated by the fact that when they went to the church service every day, she had no idea what to do. So when they stood, she didn't know when to stand. When they sat down, she didn't know why. And so, in fact, that set of well-held rituals were totally alienating to somebody who wasn't initiated into them. And so unfamiliar religious, spiritual or cultural rituals can actually feel alienating for outsiders at the same time as they unite the believers. This is just one of the many complexities of public ritual. But what about private ritual? I think of the way I wash and dry myself. It's a choreography. 
It's repeated identically every day. Think about it yourselves. The way you wash and dry yourself is probably every day exactly the same with the same movements. Or the way I iron a shirt is for me a ritual. And I know it is the same feeling for many of us. How important, one of the questions that was put to me about, about moderating today, how important then is architecture to ritual? So let's stay with the bath for a moment and think about Japan. The traditional house is built to accommodate a shared bath. In the ryokan, you wash thoroughly, then you bathe, then you have your meal. In the change of, if the change of architecture, my ritual is interrupted. So when I'm in Japan, or indeed when I'm in a hotel anywhere and the towel rack is in a different place, or the soap is not where I thought it was, or any of that architecture of the bathroom, my ritual actually has to accommodate those changes in the architecture. And so away from the architecture of the home-developed private ritual, the architecture becomes incredibly important. This topic brought me back to mind Vienna's first female architect, Margreta Schutelohotsky, about whom I wrote my play, Architecton. Schutelohotsky uh, went to the art school in Vienna and she eventually went to the, Muse the uh, School of Applied Arts. She studied under Klimt, he was one of her professors, etc. And she looked around at the results of the First World War and saw that so many men had been killed in Austria in the First World War, that there was going to be an incredible burden on women from that time onwards. They were not only going to have to keep the house and raise the children, but also go to work to earn some money. And so she decided that as a middle-class person, um, the best thing she could do would be to find a way to help those women in the house. And so she conducted these amazing time motion studies to decide how she could help the domestic work inside the house. And that's what she devoted her career to. She eventually produced in 1927 with the uh, Ernst Mai, she produced the Frankfurter Küche, which was the first ergonomic kitchen ever produced. And she'd actually worked out how many seconds she would uh, a woman would save by sitting here, turning there, pulling out the little canisters that were in the drawer in order to bake a pull-down uh, ironing board, made all these fantastic things simply to make women's work better in the kitchen. And so the daily ritual of preparing food for a family was considered and then taken into account for the architecture of the, of the kitchen. So here is a, an architect who actually looked at those rituals and decided she would build for it. But beyond the domestic, buildings often express rules, which in turn influence actions and indeed whole movements. Then buildings can lose their original functions and become monuments, and they too in turn get used for altogether different activities with different meanings. And the arts are very good at such transformations. At the same time, the breaking down of ritual is also part of contemporary evolution and can be disruptive and disturbing. Today, for instance, the ritual of theatre is breaking down as younger audiences becoming bored with the silence and stasis of linear narrative look to their bright screen devices for diversion and afterwards then often hunt for drama in alternative spaces. This can't just be dismissed as bad behaviour. The hunt is for meaning and becomes the basis for new shared rituals and, in turn, new architectures which evolve to give those new things space and authority. So, 
All this and more, it's a massive subject. We're going to cover every aspect over the next two hours. And to begin with, I'd like to invite David Pledger to join me up on the stage. David, come up. So I'd like to begin by asking David, we're actually going to move on relatively rapidly to um, sport. Um, even though David and I are both artists and work in that medium all the time, uh, we actually bond around AFL um, and that's where most of our discussions happen. And we're going to move on to that. And I know that David is keen to talk about the new rituals of sport, but I would like to start, David, just about the ritual of theatre and performance because you studied for quite a long time in Japan where I assume there is enormous ritual goes to that. Yeah, I think the um, where, I, where I, Robin's talking about a, a Japanese director that I studied with for quite a while called Suzuki Tadashi, and he uh, developed a, an acting method where um, he drew a lot from Japanese traditional theatre, uh, the martial art kendo, and he also kind of extrapolated a number of uh, inspirations from Russian uh, theatre director um, Meyerhold with biomechanics. All of those uh, training protocols uh, were really about repetition, breaking, about, breaking down the body so that it was able to be uh, considered by the performer who was then able to draw meaning from the, the every single action in place. So for Suzuki, for example, uh, the, uh, one of the main things that people know about that work is that it's very... Um, is a, 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 an exercise called stomping. So stomping is basically what you do is you, you drop your centre of gravity quite low, which uh, for um, a, a taller ex-footballer is quite hard. I, I uh, kind of struggle with that from the get-go. And then you, um, you essentially try and connect your body to the earth. So that, that, that repetition, that that uh, impact of the, the, the of organising the centre of gravity into a forceful impact on the earth essentially draws the power from the earth and from that power then you're able to connect to not just, the, uh, not just yourself as an actor in the space but another actor in the space but also the space itself. So the, the, for, for Suzuki in that way, he's, he had a really strong architectural reference to Greek theatre. So we talked a lot about the eye of God. So if I'm an actor um, performing now, I, I don't address you as the audience. I look at the eye of God and I speak to the eye of God and the audience witness that, witnesses that relationship. So the, if you like, the architecture of the engagement between the performer and the audience is, actually, is not just... Um, uh, in some aspect uh, spiritual, it's, and it's not just physical, it has to do with the organisation of space around the human body. Mm, it's interesting, I saw, a, I went to see a, a ceremony in Nara um, uh, at the time when we were doing the centenary of Canberra. So Canberra's 100 years old, Nara was 1,300 years old, a little bit embarrassing. Um, went to Nara and, and was able to get a, a place in this, uh, this ritual in, in a, a temple and was so interesting that it was they were not performing to the audience at all. In fact, their backs were entirely to the audience because, as you say, they were doing it for the spiritual reason and very much in tune with the kind of architecture. Yep. So did you bring any of that back to your practice in Australia? 
in, in fact, the question that, um, that he asked or that I understood uh, most profoundly was, how is the body an agent of design in the performing space? And for the last 20 years, I've been working on a series of protocols called body listing, which essentially investigates that. And it's gone from how does a body, uh, how is a body an agent of design in the performing space? And in his world, actually, the, the actor is the performance. What I started to become interested in is what can you, uh, what can you, what does the body sense in a, in a space? What does the body sense that it can neither see nor hear? So through these protocols, you basically uh, close your eyes or have something that masks your eyes, and there is no sound in the exercise at all, in the sound created by the exercise at all. And the point, uh, the point of departure is how do you relate as a, a, as, a, as a physical presence in whatever space you are? So, for example, in this space, you really have to articulate some relationship between your body and the architecture, the structure that it's built. So you really need to kind of process. Um, you don't necessarily need to know material, but you need to know how the material affects you. You need to know what the structures are, and then you know how to organise your body in that space so that you can, can connect as widely and as specifically with an audience as, as, as much as possible. Does that mean that the ideal, really, for the ritual of performance, and it, it all is, the ritual of performance that every piece of performance, in a sense, ought to have its own space designed for it. I, I recall Brecht, the great uh, German poet and playwright, um, in his theatre, Am Schiffdarmbaum in, um, in Berlin, uh, it was said that uh, if an actor needed to sit during a play, the chair would be designed to be the right height for the actor to sit on. You didn't get any chair, you actually designed it for the height where it was easy to sit. Would it be ideal? I mean, because we work on the fact of venues and everybody has to fit their performance into the venue. Would it ideally be better that, you know, every time you did it, you had a new venue? I, I think, actually, if you look at someone like Stanislavski, that's absolutely what he intended. Because Stanislavski, the Stanislavski that we know is really the first three volumes of his work. And the other three volumes were kept by the Russians. And I remember being in Moscow in the Soviet Union, when it was still the Soviet Union, and I went into the office of uh, the head of the um, uh, uh, Russian Academy of the Arts, uh, and he was actually a, a, a major in the army. And he said, I want to tell you something. I actually, I want to show you something. So he, he takes these three books out and he says, this is what we've kept. And what, it kept, what they kept were this whole idea about circles of action. So the circles of action, which is what uh, an actor in the psychological realm that Stanislavski was working in, um, was all about spatialising your body to a kind of, if you like, a psychogeography, so that you understood where you were at any given moment in the space in order to help uh, communicate the meaning of the, the text and the psychological landscape that he was working in. So in some ways, I think, you know, you, you look at American theatre and, and it's, you know, it's heavily inscribed by psychoanalysis. Whereas, and, and there's a lot of people who say, oh, well, yes, well, that's Stanislavski. But actually, uh, what you might call the, the, the Stanislavski that was held back is really about spatialising your psychological engagement and communicating that with the other actors and the, and the audience. Well, it's interesting that at the very other end of that spectrum, um, in Las Vegas now, 
Um, if there's a new Cirque du Soleil show, the inclination is to simply build a new casino to put it in. So Robert Lepage, the great theatre maker, was doing uh, a show with Cirque du Soleil. They simply built a new casino with a massive... And he had a $150 million budget to produce the new show. So in a sense, there is that, if money is no object, at the other end of the very commercial scale, there is this sense of if you've got a new idea and a new show and a new concept, you build a new place for it. For the rest of the time, it is about... Quite Quite often, I think, for younger performers, I think having a, an art centre, for instance, it's about trying to manipulate that art centre into the space that you really want to use the... I mean, in the last session, um, uh, Federation Square was, was praised for its programming and its alternative program. And I always talk about Federation Square as being a great place to work because you're not programming for the space, but you're programming the cracks in between. And I think you've done a bit of that there, haven't you? You just find any where where you could do something and in a sense your ideas can fit in a really wonderful way there. Yeah. I think, I mean, when you look at somewhere like the Arts Centre, I think, uh, I mean, I've always found it incredibly problematic because it's so heavily prescribed and there's almost, you know, there's only a certain amount of stuff that you can actually do in a space like that because of its prescription. And so it's built around a proscenium march. So all the work that, for example, that Suzuki would have done or work that I've done in Korea, which is all about arena theatre, and actually work that I think really responds to the Australian landscape, which is essentially a landscape that works in a sort of horizontal environment. I find it incredibly difficult to do there, and I find it difficult to read it when people try to do it there, because the architecture prescribes so heavily, so heavily all the meaning in there. So generally, I wouldn't go into uh, you know a, a space like the Art Centre. I, I, I understand, I mean, I worked in there as an actor, but I as a maker, I would really look for anywhere else that I could present a live performance. Mm. It'll be interesting to hear from Richard Roberts, who often works in those spaces and finds meaning within those very prescribed spaces. Um, let's move on to sport um, and the venues for sport. You know, there's one of the biggest things ever happening just across the road at this very moment. And I said, David and I are devoted. He is a devoted, although it's difficult. It's really difficult. He's a Essendon supporter and you played in some level? Well, you were I destined to play well, for yeah, Essendon, yeah, yeah? that's right, yes. <laughs> destined but thwarted. <laughs> um, and I'm an ambassador for the Adelaide Crows, so this is serious devotion to AFL. And, of course, the rituals about playing football but also being a fan of AFL or any sport are quite determined. I mean, the, the kind of things that you need to do from the sport. And indeed, I think when, you know, Grand Final Day happens here in Melbourne, it's like a festival of the arts. People are in tribes, they're in different colours, they're going there, there are rituals about who you meet. I used to love it at, in Adelaide, where down at the old Amy Stadium, um, you know, you'd rock up at 12 for a match that started at 2.40 and there are all cars parked and barbecues outside and every Everybody's having a barbecue outside the grounds before they go into the grounds. And, you know, for some pe pe people, the, the meat pie is an absolute essential of the ritual, etc. So there are so many things that are about ritualising that performance. And I think, David, you wanted to talk a little bit about what's new about the ritual in, well, in sport in general. No, I mean, I, I suppose I... Uh my interest in sport is really, I suppose, about, in the same way that it is about art, it's to do with, you know, aspiring to a level of perfection, if you like, you know, to play the perfect game or to, you know, to make the, 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 the perfect show. The, I think I've, and the hundreds of things that I've ever done, I think I saw one performance of mine that I thought, oh my God, that was, that was really 
that was that was actually what it what I think it should have been. So it doesn't happen very often, and I think that's that's the same with sport. I suppose for me, and maybe it's because I am a, uh, it's filtered through being an Essendon supporter, but I actually think it's actually something that goes across all sports, and it's the, I think the the social and the cultural rituals that are so um, primary and have sort of determined uh, a lot about the way in which uh, people negotiate physical space and physical space of contest and conflict have actually been, uh, are now being more, more subscribed by uh, capitalism. And I think there's the rituals of capitalism that actually have invaded that space in the space of sponsorship and advertising, uh, in betting. I mean, at the moment, the Australian Open, the, you know, the, on the first day, basically, everyone comes along and says, oh, my God, there's been betting and gambling on, you know, people throwing... Tennis players are throwing games. Um, I think the the sometimes the, the the weight of sponsorship actually obscures and suffocates the social and cultural rituals that give us so much meaning. And sometimes I think you can see that in art as well. I remember a couple of years ago I went onto the Melbourne Festival um, page uh, over summer on the website page, and I was trying to look for something, and all I got was the banner of the major sponsor. And I kept on thinking something's wrong, something's wrong. Actually, is is art? really just about the sponsorship of the event. And so the meaning of the, 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 the game, which I think is about memory and it's about tribalism and it's about connection and it's about community, those things often become suffocated by the oppressive nature of capital in the space that we're living in. I think one of the things that's happened that's very interesting in AFL is there's been a real shift back to VFL. VFL is like, you know, Sandringham, Port Melbourne, you know, Werribee, Williamstown, all the kind of, you know, the where you live is represented in, on the football field. And those things really start to be... They, I find that really interesting, that it's not just the game itself that is kind of, you know, the rules and protocols and rituals of the playing uh, that have actually changed, but it's actually the way in which community finds meaning in those spaces when they're actually being oversubscribed by capital. And I think, I mean, think, think then when you come to the architecture connected with those rituals, it's very interesting in my hometown of Adelaide where the old beautiful Adelaide Oval, um, where you could sit up in the stand and gaze out to the hills beyond and people could stand on the mound, of course, has now been refurbed, uh, I suppose, in a kind of looking at the success of the, of the MCG and the refurb there has refurbed to a point where uh, they have have kept a bit of the mound, so there's but but it's a kind of symbolic uh, moment where people can still stand on the mound and watch the game with their family, etc. Um, very very different though. Now the corporate boxes are all there. All that goes on, and it's, it's quite expensive to buy a ticket there. And that seems a long way away from when I started the first cheer squad ever in South Australia. Um, you were with us cutting up the ribbons on Friday night and taking them along and sleeping outside the gates as I did many, many times, um, that's all part of the ritual as well, that you have to sleep outside because you, you can't pre-book a ticket on the mound, yeah. etc. So the architecture of sport has also changed a lot. And that's a perfect time for me to at last get off to invite Susan Cohn up here. And David, your questions for Susan. Right. Hi, Susan. Hey, David. I'm all right, thanks. Thank you. Okay. Um, so I, uh, I played, uh, I did a pre-season at Melbourne and mm -hmm. uh, when you get a, 
when you get invited to go down to um, training uh, back those many years ago, you get a letter. And the letter is, dear, and they write your name, yeah. and it's just one line. Will you come down and start training for us on this day? And then you go along with, you know, 25 other hopeful uh, 16 or 17-year-olds. And I remember when I was... Um, uh, I had a girlfriend at the time, and just before I got the letter, we exchanged uh, bracelets. Mm -hmm. So they were those... Um, uh, it had a silver clasp like that mm -hmm. and had really... It was like... We call it a chunky bracelet. It was either like a chunky, chunky silver bracelet or, or a white gold. It was very, very mm -hmm. uh, popular. And you had your name, uh, you know, engraved in it. And my girlfriend's name at the time was Sally and she had David on hers. But I, I remember thinking, I probably... I'm not going to wear that bracelet to the first day of pre-season training at, a, at, an, at an AFL club because it mightn't look so great or it yeah, might... So, in today's culture, you would have had it tattooed, honey. Indeed, And yeah. you would not have had any choice. Yeah, that's right, yeah. And, and, and so, would it, would it have been acceptable at the club if I'd gone down with a tattoo of Sally on some part of my body, on my wrist? Well, would it have been? I know, I think I... I mean, I think those sort of teenage rituals, you know, in terms of what inscribes your body and the things that you wear, whether it's a tattoo or it's a piece of jewellery or an earring or, you know, any kind of, um, you know, application, I think those, the meanings of those have changed quite well, a lot. Well, it's interesting it's in terms of sport and talking about football yeah. because there was a stage, you know, footballers never wore jewellery and then they wore the single earring. Yeah. And everyone had one earring and you notice the, the footballer that wasn't wearing it yeah yeah and it went through its cycle now yeah. it's tattoos of course and it, was, it was a single gold earring yep. too and it was on in the left, left hand ear. side that's right yeah yes. yes because if it was on uh, it said you were a footballer yeah it said you're a footballer so when you went to the club yeah, you knew that right. was a footballer because yeah. they had the <laughs> yeah. yeah you didn't have to say anything no and, no. and sometimes footballers is better off that they don't <laughs> um the other thing about the, if you had two earrings in, that meant something else. That was about yeah. sexuality, wasn't yes. it? It meant yeah. that you were bisexual. Yes. Yes, that's yes. right. And so if you're a footballer and you had two gold earrings in, you were going to be in some, uh, cast in some other way, weren't you? Yeah. But did any, I don't think people declared themselves in that way. Not, not then. Not then. But it was, it was that shift of what was masculinity. Yeah. And where wearing jewellery it was more masculine to wear the jewellery. Yeah. And it's very interesting as a jeweller where you see these cultural yeah. habits that take over. What what prescribes, what jewellery prescribes gender now? I don't think there's any particular type of jewellery. That, that's what's so interesting now. It's about who's wearing it and how they're wearing it. As uh, how it talks about the person. I don't think it's so clearly defined anymore. And do people talk about do people talk about the jewellery that you make for them? Do they talk about that and the meaning that it has for them to other people? I certainly hope so. Um, who would you tell? Just they sort of <laughs> disappear into the myth and no one ever talk about it. They must do because other people come and ask me to make jewellery for them because they've I do a lot of relationship rings, for instance, which is work I really love. Uh, and it's where one person is giving a ring to the other or they're exchanging rings. And it's to all sorts of professions, genders, whatever. And I, I have this little ritual of um, we have to have a series of conversations. 
and because I have to understand what this relationship is and often I will know just one person and not the other and I have to have, I ask for complete freedom in what I design but there's no money paid until the design has been done and I make models and these people wear them and decide whether it is about their language and then if they become a commission then they pay. So there's this wonderful freedom um, that happens with that. People let me experiment. They let me ask very personal questions. And a jeweler is a little bit like a lawyer mm. or a person. Yeah, there's this, you know, you don't exchange that information. But it's out of that, their rituals, their habits with each other and how they interact with each other that the jewellery's evolved. And so does that affect the uh, rituals of manufacturing? Does that, do those conversations affect the way in which you make? It can. That's what's fun. Yeah. It takes you down a path you don't normally think of or you play with the material. Okay, I need now to work out how that, that works. I'd uh, always refuse to use platinum, for instance, because I didn't like it as a material and had some very close friends insist on me using platinum for their wedding rings. So I had to clean my bench. You have to have everything clean. I had to do this whole ritual. And I really love these people, and that's the only reason I did it. Um, but there was this ritual of, mm. of using that material because it gets contaminated very quickly. Mm. Um, and what about... I know you've made that, um, that, that beautiful uh, LP... Is that what oh, the gold record. I'm yeah, still working record. on that one. Yeah, yeah this I, is... I'm very curious about that because, I, I mean, for me, when I look at an LP, I mean, in some ways, that is... Uh, the, 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 the object itself is a kind of an expression of ritual just because of the grooves mm, in, mm. The, in, in, in the object mm, itself. Is, is well, it's a, it's a fascinating project. It's, um, I'm doing it with Wilho Willard and Brian Ritchie for Mona. And it came off the Voyager project in 1977 where Carl Sagan curated material and it was put onto a gold vinyl and sent up into outer space. About 18 months ago, we lost contact with the ship that's carrying it. So this is the sequel. And the difference of this one is that the material is being curated to go on it. Um, I'm not involved with the curation of the material, but I'm making the record itself. And it's not so much the gold record. I mean, that's a given, and that has a romantic notion mm. of it. And it's quite interesting because vinyl is still the most stable way in which to encode sound, even despite technology and all the space travel and all the, you know, sort of how things have advanced. And everyone has this romantic notion mm. of the gold record. But it's the package that becomes more interesting. And, of course, then there's all the discussion of how you might play it in space. Mm. And, and and what's and the feel of it? What's the? I mean, what is it? I mean, it looks it's to me like an object that I sort of actually would like to get my hands on. I want to sort of. Want to sort well, of everyone's got fetishes about gold, haven't they? <laughs> Just, <laughs> so. Do you know? I'll give you a little uh, side tidbit. An ounce of gold can be hammered out thin enough to cover the MCG. Wow! Just a little goldsmithing technique. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so I've been trying to get someone to uh, <laughs> support me doing this. A but gold grand final. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, it's a very beautiful, forgiving material that just, uh, oh, you want to do that? Yeah, we'll do that. And with, with the work that you do then, I mean, I suppose in the, at, in the sort of space of ritual, 
the work that you do when you make something, do you, do you think of it as a, a thing in the present tense or do you think of it as a thing that is in... And does it, does it occupy more than, the, more than the time in which you are making it? Does it have a... Oh, it has to. Any sort of making. Whether you're making an object or writing a poem or yeah. whatever, it has to. Um, it lives inside you. Yeah. And you've got to try and get it out. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess in, in, in live performance, it's ephemeral. Yeah. So the thing that you make actually, at best, has a kind of trace, you know. Yeah. Whereas yeah. with an object, it's a, it's a thing. It's a real thing, it's, but it's, you can't throw it away. It's not like yeah. architecture. You're stuck with it. Yeah. <laughs> at least I can put, you know, a box of dead work. Yeah. Um, you can all melt it down and make it something else. But what about the work that goes to the, pe the the work that you make for people and yeah. that they take it? I mean, do you ever kind of track the life of a a thing that you make? Uh, I'm not really going to answer that question on the grounds of discrimination. Um, <laughs> I do put little devices in. No, I'm fascinated with how jewelry wears. I mean, that's what it is. It's just an object before you put it on a body, and what people's rituals are with jewelry and and things. So now with the relationship rings, I didn't do this at the beginning. I insist if they break up and they don't want the rings anymore, yeah. they give them back to me. Uh -huh. Because I would see them on other people yeah. and things like that and go, oh, something's wrong here. Um, so now they have to bring them back, which is really interesting then the dialogue that happens with that. Yeah, okay. So it's actually, it's, it is finite then. So once the relationship's finished, then the relationship to the ring is finished. Yeah, it becomes different. Okay, so what happens when somebody loses a relationship ring? Um, they come back and tap on the door and go, oh, I lost it. Um, nine times out of ten, they find it again. I refuse to make anything for six months and it turns up. It's been remarkable, even to the point where someone, a triathlon athlete, lost her ring while training in the ocean. And she did not want to tell me that she'd lost it, so she didn't tell And her girlfriend with their young children were down on the beach two weeks later, and the kid had gone and picked up things on the side of the beach and said, Mummy, look what I found, and then she recognised the ring. I wish that had happened when I lost mine, <laughs> because it didn't. It didn't. <laughs> and I had to get it made again. Yeah. Well, I always make, it's never made identically. I always make it with yes. some of the story of the losing in it. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that would be very important. Susan, I wonder if I can ask a yeah. question. I've always pushed a theory that um, artists make, I mean, David's right, what we do, when I, when I perform, my song is gone the minute I've done it. It's in that. But for, but for visual artists, plastic artists, people have yeah. got stuff. Uh, it seemed to me that one of the things that you do is it's almost ephemeral in the sense that once you've done it, it's gone and the money that comes in is simply the tool to allow you to make the next thing. Is that in any way true or is it more than that? Uh, it sort of shifts sideways because I think you always carry that experience. You must do in performance too. Yes, it's ephemeral and it's gone, but you've gone through that experience and that experience impregnates into your psyche and that informs other, other ways of doing things. I think the most wonderful thing about being a jeweller is it's about people and everyone's different. So no two things are the same and how that informs what you do is really, really interesting. Uh, when I, uh, I'm very interested about the, the making process because if I make a video artwork, 
the decisions I make in the edit suite are the things that I see when I see the artwork again. I don't see the artwork again. Mm -hmm. I find that extremely difficult. Mm -hmm. I see the decisions that I've made, the, 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 often the difficult decisions. I see mm. That's what lives for me when I see the work again. Is that the same I thing? I find, um, I talk about it in a way of, of, I have a vision in my head about, and particularly with exhibition work, which is different from my private mm -hmm. commission work, where I'm exploring an idea and I have this concept and you, you get it out and you put it out there and you look at it and it's it's like a ghost is hovering over it because it's not quite what was there mm. and there's always a lot of ghosts there and occasionally the two blend into each other mm. and the ghost is really interesting the ghost follows you all the time a lot of ghosts um, and cast a shadow the ghost will cast a shadow too and do they cast a shadow over your making not the actual making. No. Um, do, do, the, do you sort of feel the presence? Do you actually feel it physically? So, so, so for example, and yeah, on, you know, yeah. uh, uh, if you have felt that you haven't quite made, if you haven't quite successfully made something, yeah, you haven't actually... It's often. Okay, yeah. great, thank you. That's a relief. <laughs> often. Uh, often. Yeah. So do you feel that the... Um, you know, because often, often I think the failures that you, you know, you have to ritualise failure in a way mm. in order to succeed. Mm. Mm. So the failures that you make in in your artworks, do they do they sit in your body somewhere? Yeah, yeah, they're incredibly important. Yeah. The I think I'd be terrified if I did a body of work where there wasn't some sort of mistake or failure yeah. there. I I would have really felt that I didn't get it right. Yeah. So. And, uh, and do you? Does that mean that you adjust the next time? Do you think that your body has the memory, your body retains the memory of those mistakes or failures or whatever? When you, when it's a bit like parenting or whatever. You try not repeat your parents' mistakes <laughs> and, of course, you create new ones, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> Still fuck up the children. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad my kids aren't here today. <laughs> that's, a, uh, that's a nice note to swap over again. Thank David Pledger. No, Thanks, thank David. And... Now, Susan Cohn is going to interview poet Oscar Schwartz. Oscar, come on up. Okay, this is going to be interesting. Um, we were talking before and you said you haven't sort of done this before and, you know, the nervousness about it and things like that. I was looking at your website yesterday and I really liked your breathe in, breathe out. Yeah. So maybe we do a little bit of breathing in, breathing out, a little idea, yeah. routine. What I'm curious about with this, I've now made this part of my little routine to go on the, onto your site, and there's only ever two people. Yes. It's global. Are they the same two people? <laughs> That's a good question. So the, the, the website is, um, it's, a, it's a GIF, so a moving image that expands into a hexagon and then goes back into a single point. Um, it's not a gift that I made, I just found it on the internet somewhere and um, it's supposed to control your breathing and make you mindful mm -hmm. um, and I found it really effective and just, you know, relaxing myself while I'm looking at the computer screen. So I just had an idea it would be really interesting to um, synchronise as many people's breath at the same time as possible. Um, so I put it onto a w website and then put a little bit of JavaScript into the website so it could count um, how many people were breathing at the same time as you, in mm -hmm. sync with you. Um, 
unfortunately hasn't been that popular. <laughs> um, I want to meet these two people. So, yes. so I, think, <laughs> I think that the one person, so there's two people there, one would be you. Oh, okay. Yeah. And the other yeah, one is you. The other one, <laughs> I met you. It's probably like um, the server where the website is hosted probably always has a bot. So on everyone, it. please go up onto this website and increase these numbers. Yeah. It's a very useful little thing. I think the other thing. person's not a human. It's actually a robot. Oh, good. Yeah. Oh, good. I've always wanted to meet one of those. So I don't know what their breath is like, but, you know. Yeah, so if it suddenly goes to, like, yeah, yeah exactly. I know. Yeah, okay, great. Um, well, poetry. Talk about the rituals in poetry. It has a lot of rituals. Yeah, definitely. Um, I guess um, poetry and ritual is... It, I mean, in the past, before... I mean, poetry and ritual are completely interconnected. So mm. before literacy and before writing um, poetry, the only way that it could be repeated was through ritual, mm -hmm. through ritualistic recitations. Um, and through communal recitations. It was um, always done to be spoken, not to be read. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. so you would gather around and there would be the reciter of the tribe or of the community and, it, and then they would recite and then often there'd be a chain of reciters and that's how cultural knowledge and ritual was passed down, was actually through poetry. But I guess um, post the alphabet and post writing it's very different and poets have to come up with their own types of ritual. And I guess maybe a, um, a layover from oral poetry and recitation would be things like rhyme and form, mm -hmm. which is a type of ritual that's inscribed in the writing process. You know, mm -hmm. every second line has to rhyme and it's only going to be 14 lines long. I guess that's a type of ritual that's encoded in, in the writing itself. Mm. And the, you know, rap and hip-hop and being the most sort of known, culturally known, street-level poetry. Yes. So, where do you start? How do you start with your poetry? Um, it's kind of always changing. I've, I've, um, I probably don't have strong enough rituals around my writing practice and I change too quickly between different types of rituals. Mm. Um, but um, it could be something like a ritual could be something as simple as first drafts always in a notebook, second drafts always on the computer, or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, or but then the computer could play with it. Yes. Because you, you're doing this thesis that where the computers can write poetry. So if you're putting your poetry into the computer all the time, yeah. and it's getting very familiar, it could change a couple of things. Would you realise? If the computer did, yeah, I would hope so. <laughs> but I don't actually use computers to com like I keep those two practices very separate. Mm -hmm. Like the computer-generated poetry and the poetry that I write for myself. If anything, I try since I've begun experimenting with computer-generated poetry, I try to write poetry I think the computer couldn't. Yeah. So it's like m maybe that's that relationship is its own type of ritual. It's like pushback. How human can I be? Yeah. Talk a little bit, tell the audience a bit about the website that plays with this whole notion of whether something's been written by the computer or not. I sat with a group of friends last night drinking and I said, come on guys, we'll talk about ritual, what's ritual? And I put that test to them. None of them got it right <laughs> any time, oh, so, wow. which I thought was really interesting yeah. and what they were looking at. So talk about it a little bit. 
Um, so the website is um, basically like a Turing test for poetry. Um, so it has 300 poems on it, and 150 of them are generated by computer programs, and the other 150 are written by human poets, varying. Some are famous, some are just um, poems I took off blogs that I found mm. on the internet. And you're, you go onto the website and you're presented with a poem at random from the database, and you read it, and then you have to guess whether it was written by a computer or a human. Um, and the results show that it's very difficult to tell the difference between those two things sometimes. So why would it be important to be able to tell the difference? I don't... Um, is it important? I think it's important... It, like, this is, these are things I've been thinking about. I think it's important insofar as... Um, what I believe is that it's pointless to design software to do things in human-like ways because yeah. they have cognitive capacities that are very different to what human cognitive capacities are. They're good at some, you know, we're good at some similar things, but we're also good at very different things. So the computer art that I'm interested in explores what it's like to be a computer, not what it's like to be a computer pretending to be a human. Or a human pretending to be a computer. Well, that's more interesting. Yeah, much I more interesting, much more interesting. Much interesting. More interesting. Yeah. yeah. Have you come across any? There's a, there, I mean, particularly in poetry, there's, a lot of humans that pretend to be computers and a lot of human... I mean, in, in the visual arts as well, a lot of humans pretended to be machines, like yeah, Andy Warhol yeah. said, um, I wish I was a machine. Yeah. I wish I could produce more like a machine because a machine is a perfect creature. Yeah. So we've got humans pretending to be humans, computers pretending to be computers, a computer pretending to be a human, and a human pretending to be a computer. Yeah, it all kind of gets complicated gets, and messy. Yeah, yeah. And you're exploring with... You're trying to find the human pretending to be a computer? Well, I'm kind of looking at all of those relationships, yeah. the way they all kind of work together. Yeah. Can I and pop with, in a question yeah. there? Um, is, is... Would computers be able to function ritually or is that a wholly human activity? That's a really good question. And I think, um, in a certain way, computers are perfectly ritualistic because they once you teach it a ritual they never deviate from it um, so often I think often so I was talking before about the move from oral poetry to written poetry and in that move you go from ritual recitation to a romantic idea of expression and expression often isn't associated with ritual because it's about originality and personality and I'm myself and this is my unique vision of the world. Um, but the way that a computer composes is much more like the way that oral poets recited, which is just repeating according to pre-given formulas. So in a certain sense, I think that computers are more perfect ritualistic beings than humans. Mm, interesting. In and what about, what about the idea of the... When people use this word poetry as like the poetry of architecture or the poetry of sport, mm. what, what do you reckon about the use of that word or what do people mean by that? Um, I often think about that question in terms of, uh, of music. Um, so, if, so let's say that tomorrow everyone couldn't speak with language anymore and they could only speak with um, trumpets. They could, that's the way we communicated then what the person who previously played trumpet before that day, they become the poet. Um, they have a relationship to the way that we communicate, 
which is beyond mere communication. And so I think when people talk about the poetry of architecture, um, that's kind of what they're getting at. It's like an investigation of the thing itself or something like that. Do you find that in jewellery, Susan? Is there a poetics of gold? Oh, we, or like, poetics we of always that? like to think so. We <laughs> overlay that language on what we're doing. It's so poetic, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, lovely description. I'm interested, following on from this, I'm interested because um, in your Futures Now podcasts and things and talking about the internet in the future and the internet of things and how we're going to plug our refrigerators and whatever, toasters. toasters, whatever equipment and all the data and blah, 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 and how how that may destroy some of the rituals. Mm. You know, I'm not going to make toast if I think it's going to tell how many pieces of toast I've made and whether it's... <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think rich... It's Given the amount of time we spend online... Well, I spend online and a lot of other people spend online, ritual, creating your own rituals around that and our use of technology is really difficult. It's mm. really challenging. So, you know, I try to introduce new rituals into my life, like no devices in bed, or, for instance. Oh, really? Yeah, okay. like no phone, no, <laughs> no computer... <laughs> <laughs> I see. <Yes>. Okay. <laughs> I'm glad you clarified on that one. Um, but then you always break them. Yeah. Yeah. And um, or like Saturday, you know, like a technological Sabbath. Saturday, mm. no technology. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also exciting at the same time because there's a capacity to create new types of rituals with a global audience that you otherwise never could have. Like. That, that was kind of why I wanted to make that Global Breath yeah. website because you can introduce like tons and tons of people into a new ritual. So rituals and people, that's maybe the major connection? Yeah, yeah. I it's think It's about so. people? has yeah. to be about people? Well, I Whether think it's about ourselves or other people? Yeah, I mean, those are the rituals that I... I mean, we all have... Like we said earlier, personal rituals around breakfast and washing. And yeah, well, I'm like horrible that. in the morning, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've actually seen like there's been a, um, a recent fad or craze where a lot of blogs um, go to see successful people to see what their morning ritual is. Because I think we're all kind of obsessed with like, oh, how do the successful people do it in the morning? Maybe the rest of my day will be successful if I just follow them. Oh dear, oh dear, sorry state of affairs, isn't it? Yeah, well I'm totally screwed because I am horrible in the morning until I walk the three blocks to the coffee shop. Um, I did a little project uh, in 2014 with Justin Clemens, the poet, and it was about Valentine's Day. Uh And we'd been sitting in a restaurant the day after Valentine's Day and the restaurant had a hangover. It was really, yeah. And we decided that poetry and jewellery were the two things that were abused on Valentine's Day. Uh, yes. And that we were going to address this problem. So we wrote a little manual to people could use an instruction manual of how to write a poem and, and order a 3D printed ring, you know, just to sort of... What about those sort of rituals of poetry and where they get abused? Yeah, like being on a Hallmark card. Yeah. Or, um, yeah. I guess um, that that's that using often people use poetry in to 
Um, I think most people at some stage in their life have written a poem um, and it's often very much connected to um, deep personal feelings. Mm-hmm. Um, and they see poetry as a type of personal expression. Um, but I don't, I don't think that's ever connected, it, ever ritualistic. It's like an anomaly. It's like in, in moments where, you, where ritual disappears, like poetry remains for you to express yourself or something like that. But, it, but, it, but I guess it is... Poetry is used a lot at funerals. Yes, well, I was just going to huh? say, yeah, there's, it's, it's often That's associated with death, yeah. and there's, there's very strong death rituals mm. in, in all cultures. Mm. It's a time when you kind of want to... Well, I think that's when ritual, the, the function of ritual really shows itself, because you kind of want to detach from having to make decisions for yourself and just be swallowed up by a ritual, so you can just kind of go into automatic mode and just go through the motions until you know, however long has passed where you feel yourself again. And poetry is something that everyone doesn't write on a regular basis. Yeah. You, you have a leaning or an understanding of it. So it has that um, higher atmosphere about it that people try to connect with. Yeah. Why did you become a poet? Um, good question. <laughs> I... I I had a great teacher, basically, at university. Oh, we're yeah. lucky. Yeah. And, uh, and, and kind of you're protected more, Susan, because while everybody will um, attempt a poem at some time, very few will attempt to make a golden ring. Please thank Susan Cohen. Next up, a conversation about ritual between two wordsmiths. Oscar is now going to interview journalist Gabriella Koslovich. Welcome her. Um, so I was reading um, an article of yours where you discuss uh, a trip you took to Morocco and yeah. you, um, on the way back from Morocco, you're taking a, a ferry from Morocco to Spain Yes. and you notice um, a change in dress, in dress codes, particularly yeah. in relation to women and in mm. Morocco, women more covered and in Spain, less so. Mm. Um, so I was thinking, it made me think about the relationship between, and it's been talked about a little bit today, ritual and, and gender. And a lot of the rituals um, that I was introduced to on a religious level when I was younger, there's a, a very strong separation between men and women. Um, so I guess my question is, if there are rituals that are really strongly gender separated and maintain certain gender binaries, um, is there a way in like this contemporary moment to maintain those old rituals and break down those gender binaries or do we need to invent new ones? Wow, you've started with a really <laughs> difficult question and the question of the moment. I mean, gender, I don't know if I, I even want to go there. Um, I think people should dress uh, the way they feel. Um, I, it's a, can you just repeat the question? It's a very difficult one. I a guess, good one, but a difficult one. Okay, so I guess, say, um, at a Jewish wedding, yes. you, um, you go and the men and the women dance separately yes. um, at the beginning when you're mm-hmm. doing the traditional dances. Mm-hmm. Can you 
maintain those traditional dances and dance together? Or do we need a whole new way of dancing at weddings? Well, I guess this goes to the heart of um, the complexities of ritual that Robin mentioned at the start, and that is ritual can have positive effects. It can also have a negative effect. And one of the um, elements of ritual that I've distanced myself from, as someone who was also raised in a religion, is the social control element of it. Mm. And I guess that's kind of what you're alluding to to a degree. So this, this flip side of ritual is social control, tradition. And personally, I've tried, I've, I've distanced myself from it. So, so I'm skeptical of ritual to a certain degree as well, particularly religious ritual, because I grew up not um, in a Catholic faith and did all the standing up, sitting down that Robin alluded to at the start. And I knew exactly what the standing up and the sitting down did. In fact, me and my, my younger brother would often say, oh, we hate going to Sunday Mass because all you do is stand up, sit down, kneel. Um, so tradition, sorry, ritual, which is also related to tradition, has these complexities to it and I guess I, whenever I look at ritual or what the rituals that I have in my life, and I have very few and they're secular more than sacred, it's what meaning does it have for me and I'm sceptical of ritual because I think sometimes it does, of certain rituals, um, sometimes it does, it puts you in a box and doesn't allow you and tells you how you should behave as a human being, including how you should behave according to your gender. On the other hand, there's this, conversely, I'm very attracted to the rituals of other cultures. Mm. I mean, you could call that exoticizing to an extent, but they are interesting because ritual can also be illogical to someone who is not part of it. And that's part of the alienation that Robin mentioned at the start. So it's, yeah. I mean, your question is a great one and it's one that we could talk about, you know, we could have the whole session talking about it. Yeah. But I guess at the heart of it, it for me, it's what works for you, what rituals do you want to still be part of, which, ritual, which rituals should we be questioning yes. as well? Definitely. And, and thinking about that in the lead up to this session, um, I guess, and, and I've spoken about this with a lot of my friends before, we feel that there's a lack of, like one type of ritual that, that just doesn't exist for us in secular society is um, a type of initiation ritual, yeah, which is so great. important yeah. in in other cultures um, yes. and has been in the past for all cultures. Yes. Do you have any opinions about like? How I do. We I th I think and I've thought about that a lot. What are the initiation ceremonies? And I think, and excuse me now for sort of perhaps being gender biased, but I think particularly for for younger men, mm. because we see um, rituals that perhaps aren't useful, uh, yes. getting drunk. Um, sort of ritual that seems to be very much a part of Australian society and I have thought about that and I think those initiation ceremonies that have happened for men or women or um, are really important and I've, I don't know what they could be. Mm. There was, uh, wasn't there a movement, I think it was Stephen Bidulph was his name, who was sort of talking about that kind of stuff in the 90s, you know, reclaiming masculinity but in a positive way. I think that's a really good point you make and I would like to see some kind of initiation ceremony, but I'm not sure what it would be. Yeah. Do you have any ideas on that front? Well, not specifically, but I was thinking about how initiate, like traditional initiation ceremonies often include um, people of different generations, yeah. which I think is kind of what we lack is a yeah. dialogue between older and younger people. Yeah. So, you know, young, young people have their own 
you know, you finish school and you go out and get trashed, and that's a type of initiation ceremony. But there's no older people there to tell you, oh, this is how we did it, this is what might help. So I think rituals often bring together people of different ages, which doesn't happen so much in our society. Yes, and I do love the idea of speaking across generations and across ages. And I don't think I've consciously done this, but, you know, I have friends who are very young and friends who are uh, older, and I love what all of them bring to my life. And... Whether there's a way of ritualising that, I, I don't know. Whether you know, And in a way, religion did that in my life, but I found religion um, limiting and restricting in other ways. Yeah. Um, so how do we find a new uh, ceremony to create to create that? And I think we're good at doing that. I mean, we've had... There have been ceremonies, you know, like that have been created, contemporary festivals or ceremonies or rituals, such as the Pride March or mm. Mardi Gras, that sort of... Um, claim a space for non-traditional uh, ritual, or, or who say, which says um, there are other types of um, ways of being that need to be recognised and ritualised. Yeah. So maybe, I mean, that could be your next project, Oscar. <laughs> <laughs> Just let me, let me chip in for a minute. Um, I mean, it, if you really looked at initiation ceremonies, I was at a festival in Grahamstown in South Africa, and it was a great community theatre piece about um, the fact that boys were being taken up into the hills and they were being uh, initiated um, and therefore circumcised, but there were starting to be real health risks. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the show was really about... Um, the fact that, like, like, should we should we do it down in the city where there's at least medical help available, or sh- and can we afford to break tradition like that, or shall we continue to go up into the hills and take medical support with us? But there was real concern about the preservation of of a, of a centuries-old ritual, and I mean uh, to enter into very very difficult territory. For some people, the ritualisation of genital manip- mutilation of women mm. is part of a ritual. Mm. And at what point do does anyone have the right to step in and stop it? And or if you're going to do that, you have to think about um, the way you negotiate that. I guess that's what it's about. When some rituals actually become difficult, Gabrielle, I don't know if you've got any thoughts on that because it's a really tough one. I mean, for all our talk about you know a great multicultural cu- country, the fact is that if you really live cheek by jowl with people whose values are very different from yours, there's a massive amount of renegotiation to be done. Well, I have a yeah, I have very strong feelings about female genital mutilation. Clearly, I would have. Um, I don't know how you negotiate that. I wish it didn't happen is all I would say. But I understand that it's a difficult one to negotiate. Yeah, yeah. It, yes, it, it, it came up a lot in a, a Women of the World conference mm. in London I was at uh, earlier last year. And uh, it's, just, it's just how when you, when you tread on the toes of other people's values and mm. rituals, mm. and that's going to happen increasingly. I mean, with the new but massive migration, when we tread yeah. on each other's toes accidentally, how do we then, or willingly, how do we then negotiate? that path. Is it about just discussion and talking? And it goes back to what I said earlier about not all rituals. I mean, do we have to, compl- you know, do we have to continue certain rituals just because we've done them for centuries or however long? I think it's about questioning rituals and what value they have today and whether they are still relevant and what are the harms or not that are created by them. So Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. It, it reminds me of, I mean, there's a, a great um, story, short story by Kafka where, where there's a um, a village next to the mountains and they have a feast every year and one year these leopards come down from the mountains and destroy the feast 
and it happens the next year. So the third year they set up two feasts, one for the townspeople, one for the leopards. The leopards come down and they eat the feast, they see them go back to the mountains and then the townspeople eat their feast and that's the resolution. Mm. And they do that for 150 years and everyone who remembers that you know the leopards coming down to begin with, they all pass away. And then one year they set up the two tables mm. and the leopards don't come and they mm. can't start their feast because mm. the ritual of the leopards coming and eating the other table uh, doesn't happen, mm. so they're just kind of stuck. They're, yeah. they're complete. And you mentioned um, how ritual can be illogical because the origins are forgotten. Yeah, yeah. Um, and ritual begins because, you know, I mean, it's part of human society, all human societies, and they begin because we want to create, even our little personal rituals, they're about creating a sense of order yeah. and control in this, you know, rather chaotic life that we lead. I mean, being, being human is unpredictable, perhaps less unpredictable now that we're out of the cave, but ritual is about order, giving, giving some sort of sense of control to chaos, Yes, isn't it? Do you, as a writer, I mean, you need a certain degree of ritual to pr approach your work. Do you, have, do you have strong rituals around how you approach your writing? Um, yeah, I, it, I was thinking about this, and they're really stupid little things, really. Um, first of all, a, a bit like Susan, I'm horrible in the morning and I've got a, I must have a coffee, so that's the first thing I do. But the other thing I do, which sounds really cliched and a bit wanky, is I, I burn essential oils in the study. I close the door. And then the other thing that I feel I really need to do is have socks on. Some, <laughs> I think it's the comfort factor. Even if it's 40 degrees, I kind of still need the socks on. Yeah. And then I put the earplugs in. And I, even if it's not noisy, and I think that's because I, most of my working life has been in a newsroom, which is crazy. Right. And trying to write in the chaos of a newsroom, I got accustomed to putting earplugs in. And now I feel like I can't hear my brain unless I have earplugs in. Yeah. So they're just very weird and idiosyncratic. And that is what it is also to be human. You have these strange little idiosyncratic rituals which give away something about yourself. And that are part of your identity as well. The earplugs are like the leopards. They started for a reason, but then Th you don't know why. Right. It's like the second table. They are. Well, <laughs> that's great. I like that because I'll go away and think, I've got leopards in my ears. That's far more exciting than having earplugs in my ears. And we mentioned before about um, technology and mm. how that requires new mm. forms of rituals. Mm. And particularly for writers who, I mean, we get we do a lot of our research and our writing on yeah. a computer. Do you yeah. have strict rules around your technology use? Uh, no, because I am pretty anti-technology. Well, not really, but I grew up in the old days when I used paper and pen. Um, so I don't find myself too attached to technology. What I find myself doing is um, trying to distant. Well, I have the, the laptop always there, but I always have a pen and paper to write mm -hmm. because I find that the flows, the brainstorming happens easier when I've got my hand and a paper. Um, I find technology, so I kind of hate the laptop. I love it and I hate it as well. I love it because you can put all this stuff in it and cut and paste, but I also feel it, it, it sort of makes things too formal when they're not actually set in my brain. Mm. I don't like how nice and neat it makes everything look, whereas I like the chaos that happens at the start of, of a process. Sometimes I think it's a stifling thing to do, and if I'm feeling stifled, I'll, I'll always print something out and go and sit in another room and 
just read it with a pen and paper. So I think I feel that technology can sometimes put you in a little box. Yeah. I also love it. I mean, you know, internet for research is just astonishing. Yeah. You know, the fact that I can now from home look up what's at the State Library of Victoria and, you know, and order it from my home is brilliant. I, you know, in the old days, yeah. you'd have to go to the university library or wherever and find the little thing that told you where the book was and go and physically take it out. It was such a different process. Um, so, the, you know, I, the technology is wonderful, but it's also, it's also something that can usurp your creativity. Yeah. So it's, it, I guess I'm mindful in how I use it. And so the ritual there is sitting there with a pen and a pad of paper as, as well as the laptop. And in terms of um, interviewing people, I mean, I, I guess mm. in, it's really easy now to um, get someone's Skype address and just Skype them and record it on your phone and then listen back and you have a perfect interview. But you lose the ritual and the various, like going to get a coffee with someone. Do you, yeah. do you make a point of still meeting people face to face? I, I love meeting people face to face. Um, and I did it just the other day for, it was just for a 300 word, you know, 350 to 400 word story. I could have done it at home, but the, the opportunity to go and speak to, it was an architect, Corbett Lyon, um, presented itself. and. I was so glad that I met him face to face and we could have that interaction. I think it's so important. And just one last thing, I did my first Skype video interview just the other day and I loved that too. Yeah, it's pretty great. <laughs> I think it's really interesting though that for both of you, writers once had the same degree of ritual preparation as painters because of your instruments. And when you think of pens and quills and inks and all those, or yeah. papyrus before that, um, there was so much ritualisation which now many writers will miss out on because they will simply, it'll be the brain to the computer yes. and there will be nothing material about it. It's That's a right. fascinating aspect, I think. And it's I almost think. like you haven't warmed up and you're not ready and you've, got a, you've already got this perfect machine waiting for you to create perfect words, perfectly formed, and it's not like But, that. Oscar, you must have grown up with technology, mm -hmm. so have you gone back and re-adopted the, the pen and paper? Because you say, you, you know, a, a rule is maybe you begin with a notebook. I, I, always, I like you, always have a uh, notepad and then the computer, um, just because I feel that it engages different parts of the mind. Mm, great. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, please thank Oscar Schwartz. Oscar, what, what is your website? What's the website? Um, it's botpoet.com. What? Bot. Botpoet.com. Botpoet Very nice. Thank you. Um, and Gabriela Koslovich is now going to interview Rico Rennie. Please welcome him to the stage. Hi, Rico. Hey, Gab. <laughs> Last time I spoke to you was in your studio in Northcote. Before we start, shall we? Um, can I acknowledge the traditional owners of the land that we're on, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and pay my respects to elders past and present? Sorry. Gary. Thank you. No, it's okay. Um, yes, yeah, so the last time we spoke, it was in your studio in Northcote. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you had recently moved into that, and we're in this space which is about architecture, um, and you. For the first time in your life, you said you had a studio that you really, really enjoyed um, and that worked for you and your practice. Tell me how that space, which is this huge 300 square metre mm. warehouse, has affected your ritual as an, art, as an art maker, as an artist. Yeah, I mean, in the past I was always confined um, 
you know, again, regarding architecture, confined to the space of creating X amount of, you know, works in, you know, in terms of size and, and things like that, and then working in various mediums. So, you know, it was really important to find a space that was big enough to work on, you know, the larger works I'm doing, the installations, and then having the ability to have other mediums included in this space. Yeah. So, it really gave me a chance to spread my wings, kind of, so to speak. Yeah. yeah, and you have some quite important rituals as part of your practice, and one of them is the, the making of pigments of colour. Mm. Um, how important is the actual creation of the pigments from scratch for you to the ultimate work? That ritual, yeah, what does yeah. that do for you? It's funny that there is a real ritual associated to the pigments and, and you know, making the colours, the paints, producing that. I mean, I, don't, I buy things... Um, I've had to research what pigments work really well in terms of acrylics and dispersion and things like that. And, you know, working, you know, it took many years to work that, that process out and mixing colours and finding out, um, you know, which pigments can be, you know, realised in, in terms of the work I make. And maybe that's something that, you know, traditionally, you know, my people, the Camilleroy, there was a lot of trading that went on to the Flinders Ranges to get, you know, different coloured ochres and mm. blues and, and you know, people would walk thousands of kilometres to trade yeah. to get these really pigments for Easter rituals and things like that. So I think maybe, I don't know, maybe that's some inherent thing that's come down, but um, it's mm. also from the early days of doing graffiti. It was always about mm. bright colours and, mm. and I really love bright colours and bright pigments and, yeah. and um, you know, having that saturated... Uh, representation through the work is really important. So. Yeah, so you've had some, I mean, you have interesting rituals as part of your work. You've got, if you go back to the way you started, which was, you know, graffiti in Footscray as a street, mm, mm. you know, graffiti artist. So that's a very contemporary ritual, but you also draw on the rituals and the ceremonies of your forebears, the mm. Camilleroy people. Yeah. Um, can we talk about the sort of the ritual first of uh, graffiti? What was, how was that? How was, you know, how did you get into that? And is it a ritualised thing going yeah, out there? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's, you know, the whole ritual of mark making, you know, repetitive, um, you know, leaving your name somewhere in a repetitive format, but it becomes a ritual. There's rituals associated to the whole movement where, you know, you might be learning what kind of inks mm. will stain better than others, and so, you know, you end up being this alchemist in a way where you're mixing with, you know, leather dyes, raven oils, and, and all these things where, you know, as young kids, you, you it's trial and error because, you know, you want your mark to remain after it's been removed. So it's about staining. So there's all these rituals associated to that. Yes. Well, that's interesting because you kind of think of people who leave marks that it's about identity and imprinting their sort of themselves and their ego on the world. But it also, for you, became something that was about learning about medium and paints. Yeah, definitely. It was just there was so many facets to it. I mean, of course, there's, you know, you, you want to be noticed by peers and, and leaving your mark there. And it's also, you know, going against authority and, and the system there. Yeah. And, and that was a big factor for me, you know, I think as a young, disaffected teen uh, growing, growing up in a very predominantly working class environment. So was, so it was a ritual that actually went against authority. So it was flipping the idea of ritual, which yeah, is usually well, about, you, you know, following authority. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it kind of, you know, I mean... It, it gave me a buzz to, to write things on things I shouldn't be, you know, as a kid, as a young young male, um, you know, breaking that authoritarian rule 
through doing something simple as uh, mark making. Well, that's that's interesting you say that because Oscar was, um, you know, talking about male initiation. Could is that a sort of initiation, and is it one well, that yeah, might be useful? Yeah, there's or, or not. I can imagine a lot of people I mean, going, no way. <laughs> yeah, there's there's many you know facets I, I guess relating to the notion of initiation. I mean, I've made work about. You know, there's this traditional notion of initiation from, you know, a contemporary, I mean, an Aboriginal perspective. And then in the contemporary format, I mean, for me, I, I grew up, you know, in an urban environment. So my notion of initiation was, you know, getting arrested, getting into trouble, you know, drugs and, you know, and things like that and yeah. other things. So there's different facets of initiation for, you know. Yeah. For, for depending on where you grew up as well. And would you recommend those forms of initiation? Well, yeah, not all of them, but some of them, yeah, for sure. What yeah. would you recommend? Oh, no, we won't go. But, uh, <laughs> no, look, you know, those, they, they were about growing as well, you know, yeah. finding identity through, you know, sometimes, you know, negative... Yeah, um, and dangerous sometimes. And, uh, yeah, and, you know, some of it was positive too, but... Mm. So and I guess initiation, even in traditional societies, there is an element of danger in initiation, some initiation ceremonies. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, whether it's as, you know, some communities will still practice, you know, circumcision and some don't, some mm. are matrilineal, so it all depends on, but, yeah, of course, there's some, yeah. And clearly, as part of your work, you've, you've studied the traditions and ceremonies of your, of your forebears. Are there any rituals that you feel very attached to and that you want to sort of um, continue or evolve or reinforce? I, well, look, you know, I think w one of the real basic, um, I suppose, not even a ritual, but a necessity is learning language again. And that's slowly, that's being, it's slowly being introduced in schools and primary schools and, and different areas. And I think because, you know, people are so dispossessed and dislocated and, and removed from culture because of former policies, you know, just the basics of going back to having language, you yeah. know, and then that assumes identity through language, and yeah. then, you know, other aspects that can be practised, you know, come yeah. with that. But I think it's really important. Um, yeah. Yeah. And is that something that you're doing yourself or with well, your daughter? Yeah, there's bits and pieces that I've got, yeah. um, but it's being introduced in the area in northwestern New South Wales through yeah. school programs. Yeah. And so, you know, that's a start. I think it's... Mm you know, revitalising culture in a way. Mm. Um, but, you know, there were many other forms, you know, the beautiful line making through mm. sand and carving. And, and so, you know, I, I take some of those practices because I, I'm not initiated in that traditional sense. Yeah. But I can use it in a different contemporary yeah. format. Well, yeah. well, your designs, your paintings, draw very much on yeah, yeah. the designs of the Camilleroy Yeah, people. yeah, it's, it's, you know, my family coat of arms. Yeah. So, in, in a Western sense. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, what about your personal rituals? Do you have any sort of unusual or idiosyncratic or strange ones that you'd like to share with us? No, look, I mean, it's pretty... Yeah, really? Oh, there's probably a few. Um, what about the art practice? I mean, is there yeah, anything Yeah, the art, art practice, I mean, usually it's really, you know, I kind of tend to shy away from um, technology, even though it's very useful, of course, and, you know, research, but I always have, you know, a bunch of moleskins and I go through, you know, a bunch of books every so many months yep. and there's a lot of drawing yep. so like you know and I yep. maybe it's a practice from early days of note taking and yeah and writing and stuff but mm. you know i tend to put down my my thoughts and a lot of them are uh, you know illustrations you know 
and mm. sometimes text, but mainly illustrations about ideas. Mm. You know, looking at other projects that work well, and particularly you know other, and doing research about you know curatorial projects that work well or sometimes don't work well. Yeah. Um, other artists, of course, going to shows, but. But the main thing that I, I always reference is my notebooks. Mm, yeah. Yes. Do you? Yeah. So they're like your visual diaries. They are. Yeah. And I and I travel with them everywhere. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah. And you know, there's there was stuff. Something I was, I've got a show coming up in May, and I was looking at. I found an old book from 1998, and there was some text in there that I'd written that I'd used last year for mm. a show, and I totally didn't even realise that I'd, I wrote it. You know, what was that? 1998, like 17 years ago. Yeah. 18 years ago. Yeah. So it was nice to draw on something that you know that was there as an idea, yes. but wasn't utilised. So. But what about when you get into the studio? Are you sort of already geared up and ready to go? Yeah, or? I spent I, I, I do. I spend a lot of time in the studio. I like you and many other creatives. I think you know I've got to have the coffee in the morning, and then you know I get in there no later than nine. And then I'm there for you know sometimes 12 hours, sometimes 10. Mm. Eight, it just depends, but I'm mm. usually there six days a week. Mm. And that way, you know, if I'm not mixing paint, I'm doing something. I'm even if I'm just you know hanging out. It's just that being in that space. Yeah, being in yeah. the space, and I have the the opportunity to create or not. You know? Do you think art, your art practice, is it a sort of ritual? Is the actual is being an artist ritualistic? Yeah, yeah definitely. I mean, you know, at times. I mean, what we're doing, whether we're making work or, or not, there's a, a ritual associated to the creative element. So, you know, you're mm. seeking ideas, you're going somewhere, you're, mm. you know, taking things in. So yeah. yeah. And you also cross the river every day to go from the south to yeah. Northcote, which would just drive me nuts. But I wonder if that's part of your getting into the headspace that's yeah, away it's really, from... It's really important. I, I, I don't, I've had a studio at home and... Many years ago, I had one at home, and it just—it's hard to separate. And yeah. I think it's hard to switch on and make work. Whereas if I've got a separate environment, mm. I go there, and it's like treating it like a, a job. You know, I go yes. there six days a week. Yeah, you don't go and do the dishes in between, or put on a load of laundry or something. No, no. <laughs> no. I mean, you know, I would if I was at home, but um, no, it's—it's it's important that I've got this separate environment, yeah. you know, because yeah. then I can switch off. Yeah. And and I don't like being disturbed either. No. So it's really important where I, you know, I'm in that in environment where I can work. Mm. And um, mm. yeah. And are there? I've been thinking. Are there any rituals or traditions that really irk you? And you, know, you think really wide and far because we've talked about the flip side of rituals, sort of the not so. I mean, you know, I hate Christmas, for example, and everything that goes yeah, with yeah. that. Yeah. Well, yeah. There's yeah. There's some elements like that. I mean, you know, look at. Invasion Day, Australia Day, for instance. That's a great Perfect point. Example, you know? uh, that's a really good point. You know, I mean, look. Yeah, I hate it too. Oh, I avoid it. And I was very glad this year that usually on Australia Day, I'm at the age, well, I had for so many years, we're at the age yeah. newspaper, and I'd look across the road to Southern Cross and see the you know young guys wrapped up in their Australia flags, and I'd be so just angry, and I would loathe having to take the tram mm. home because I'd know that there'd be this sense of... I, I don't know if I made it up or if it was... It just felt like a tense day for me. It is later on. And yeah, I'm, yeah. you know, and I'm not First Nation, I'm not Indigenous, mm. but it just still felt very tense. Mm. Um, and I was very happy this year to be at home in my study with my earplugs and socks on and avoiding Australia mm. Day. Yeah. And you call it Invasion Day. Well, it is, you know. It's, it's, you know, it's not the founding, it's not a celebration of the foundation of Australia. I mean, mm. you know, if we're going to start 
looking at it all realistically. You know, 1901 Federation, you know, I mean, it's invasion day, so... So there's a ritual that, according to you, and I would agree with you, needs to be re-examined and perhaps reinvented. It does, yeah. I mean, it's, it does. It has to be something that's more representative of where we are today and more inclusive. You well, know, and you now it's, it's becoming... It's a bit too nationalistic and... Yeah. And, um, yeah. and you know, it's just... And that's happened during my lifetime too. Yeah, I don't remember this really nationalism quick. when I was younger. Mm. Like I remember going to Europe uh, for the first. We, we returned to Europe when I was age fourteen, and I, I came to Australia age three. And my family we finally went back to, to Italy and Europe when I was fourteen. And I remember us proudly wearing our Australia jumpers and stuff because we're going home to Italy and show everyone we're from Australia. I wouldn't think. I just would not wear anything with Australian flag today. But that's because someone has. Certain certain people have ruined that image for me that yeah. was once so benign has mm. become so loaded. Mm. But how do we reclaim it so that it is, or do we have to just ditch it and start a completely new thing? Well, you know, I mean, look at New Zealand. I mean, you know, I think we've got to ditch the flag, to be honest. It's it's not ditch the representative flag and ditch of who we Australia are now. Day. Yeah. yeah, and you know, it wasn't representative of who we were before. But that's true. Um, but you know, that's my opinion, and. What would yeah. you like to see? What kind of ritual would you like to see in its place? Do you think? Well, I think to, you know, scrap the day and do, do, do put another day on. And, yeah, I mean, look, there needs to be a lot of considerate um, discussion about True. where we are now. Yep. And something to represent that. Yep. If I can butt in, um, going back to your graffiti days, mm. we've talked a lot today about the relationship with ritual and architecture. Was there a kind of hierarchy of bravado look was it more oh, yeah, yeah. more important to graffiti something like a cop shop or your school than just a fence around the corner yeah yeah no there was there, there was you know of course trains and things and um you know certain areas that were you know highly visible and anything railway trackside and and then at, at that time there was also a whole group of transit police that were really um, pretty wild dudes that used to go around and bash young kids and you know and, and all that kind of stuff so it was all about you know there's high visible areas that were important to be seen at yeah. and required more courage I yeah, imagine yeah, to yeah, be able yeah, to definitely. get out there I was just three days ago I was in Valparaiso in Chile and there there's been a whole the whole joint is muralized and mm. graffitied and apparently in order to stop tagging on buildings the people that own the buildings have commissioned artists to do murals mm. so it's kind of inspired a whole lot of other stuff as well makes it a really lively port town yeah, it's great. I mean, that's what's happening, you know, slowly here, City of Melbourne and City of Port Phillip, realise that to reduce, you know, um, I guess, damage on the street, they've, you know, embraced uh, a lot of murals and things, and it reduces the amount to a degree anyway. Mm. Gabriella, we're just about to say goodbye to you. Um, uh, what, are, what, I mean, still for you, collect. what are the collective rituals for journalists? Apart from the private business that you've both talked about, about your own writing and painting practice, are there any collective rituals? Oh, you mean like standing around the water cooler and telling each other gossip? Yeah, that kind <laughs> of thing. That's right. That's the kind of thing. Um, oh, so many. Uh, standing around and having cups of tea and bitching about the person that's, you know, not doing much work and everyone else having to... Look, it was such a crazy environment and I've been out of it for three years now. Um, 
I'm not sure that it, it is, but looking back on the, my time at newspapers, Enrico might agree, it's such a strange world and it's full of ritual mm. and not all of them are great and it's a very weird environment where you really start to kind of, there's a certain level of arrogance. And I'm not, I've, most, you know, most of my friends are journalists and I adore them and they're not arrogant, but there's, it can become, despite the fact that you're always going out into the world, you can become a very insular environment where you forget that a lot of people just don't care what you're doing and that you're a journalist and you're not, you know, that powerful. And what about the architectural environment for Ugh. journalism? Because basically, yeah, exactly. Awful, One always awful. thinks of it as confined, crowded, yep. all that kind of thing. It's one of the things I loathed most about working in newspapers. Uh, you felt like battery hens. Um, the last building I worked at, at the age, which was um, an, an architect-designed building, that was really good. And that's where they are now. And there was light. Natural light was really important. And um, spaciousness, even though we were still working all very closely together. Um, but the architecture of newspapers has been one of the difficulties of being a journalist. Mm. Um, and I think the age newspaper now is a much better building than it you know, it could have been. But um, the whole format's changed. I mean, that's yeah, thing, it's such so. a different world to when we were there. Mm. I, I don't even know if I can talk about it anymore. Well, yeah. congratulations on being out of it. Please thank Gabriella Koslovic. <laughs> And now Rico Rennie is going to interview art curator from ACME at the moment, Sarah Tutton. Please welcome Sarah. Now, welcome Sarah. Um, I haven't seen you for a while. No, I haven't seen you for a few years. Yeah. So, look, I didn't. I thought we'd just have a chat. Yeah. Um, I didn't prepare anything. I'm a winger. Yeah. Too, so. I know. Um, so, talking about ritual, I mean, you know, from a curatorial element, yeah. and also working in an institutional mm. environment, you know, what are some of the the rituals associated to when, you know, you're having to put something on, uh, something like some of the larger scale shows mm. that you've you've worked on mm. in the past. I mean, I imagine working from that in, in within an institutional environment. There's limitations as a curator. Sometimes, are there? Or there are. I mean, when I was thinking about ritual and going from the sort of personal rituals to mm. work rituals, I thought one of the, I suppose, hurdles for me is that I don't think I'm a very ritualistic person. Mm. And one of the things as a curator that you have to think about is what other people's rituals are when they go to see an exhibition. And, you know, there are some really basic things when you're working with a designer that you go through that, you know, people tend to follow a certain path and they, as a group, tend to want to do a certain thing in an exhibition. And when I go to an exhibition, I think I do the thing that no, most people don't do, that I tend to run through it and then go back to the beginning. And if everybody did that in a big-scale exhibition like David Bowie, mm. it would just be impossible. So I tend to do that and then run back and then everyone has their own relationship to didactic panels and texts and audio guides and things. But I tend to be pretty freeform. I don't like too much information. I just like to go in and see the art, basically. Mm. But I think a lot of people don't want to do that. And they go in there, often in the shows that I work on, in big numbers. And making an exhibition you have to sort of think of really basic things like bottlenecks and mm. how
how people are going to navigate that space. And the exhibition space that I work with is an old railway track, so it's very linear. So then often when you're thinking about it, you end up making very linear stories. And I'm, I suppose increasingly, people don't think in that linear way. One of the things mm. that we've been talking about, a lot of work is that sort of multi-narrative video game way of mm, thinking. Yeah. And how do you do that in something which is a train platform and is long and thin? So that's sort of how you negotiate people's habits in an exhibition space, what they are used to doing, but mm. at the same time you want to give people something different. You don't want to do exactly what they mm. are expecting, but also not freak them out too much and not cause collisions of people. And, and I suppose you'd have all the research and data about how long roughly people spend in a time... How people move. Yeah. Like, I, I'll probably get this wrong because I'm a curator, not an exhibition designer, but, you know, they tend to go to the left. Mm. They spend a certain amount of time in front of something. Uh, people tend to read didactic panels... So you get people sort of banging up against each other. That doesn't lead to a very good exhibition experience for people. So mm. you have, it's about people's flow, but also you don't want everybody to have... You, you want to surprise them and you want to not stress them out too much, but you want to give them something that they hadn't expected. And I suppose what's different about going to an exhibition or going to the football or is that it's communal. Mm. And... You want to encourage people to have that communal experience, to talk to the person next to them, to have a sense of it being something that you're all in together. More engaging. And more engaging, yeah. Because yeah. 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 otherwise, particularly with some of the like, strange centre of the moving image, you could just watch it on YouTube mm. and it could be a singular experience. So that, how you make something communal, you don't have headsets on and you get people having, I suppose, a different experience to the screen is really difficult, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. And so pre, you know, once you find out well, you've got to put some, curate some yeah. amazing big show on, uh, like ones of the past, yeah. what, what's your ritual associated pre, you know, research? Oh, I've been listening to everybody talk about getting their pens out, yeah, yeah. but I don't do that. <laughs> I'm not like that at all. I make particularly one curator that I work with, hang out in a cafe a lot with me. And I don't drink coffee, so you can drink a lot more tea than you can drink of coffee. So my ability to sit in a cafe and kind of shoot the breeze, that's how I get into something. I think I feel quite anxious about writing something down. Mm. So eventually, you know, you have to put your pitch document together and you have to go and take it to your exec team and make it happen. Mm. But I do a lot of kind of moving around it and not writing anything down. And so bouncing ideas off, you know, fellow... Talking to yeah, as many yeah. people as possible. Yeah. So at the moment we're developing a new show and we're just writing a list of all the people to have coffee with. So <laughs> we'll write that list. <laughs> but, yeah, I, and I notice that I work with a lot of people who write things down and need quiet and they have a very different ritual to me. Yeah. And what about uh, personally? Um, I was talking to Gabrielle about this before. I'm not a very ritualistic person, so I have one ritual, which I read the death notices. Oh, yeah. I used to, I used to do that... Uh, yeah, I used to read the obituaries a while ago at the age. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, and I've done it since I was about 30. 
which is a sort of an odd time to start reading yeah. obituaries. But I, that's the, about the only everyday thing I think that I do. <laughs> and and what what are, you know in terms of um, I suppose Acme as well. Um, what what about that institution? There's rituals associated to the environment there, isn't there? In a way. There are. I mean, a big institution has, you know, it grows these rituals that people learn together and you come in and you, you go along with the rituals that people behind you have sort of set in place. But it's, you know, it's a living institution. Those things shift over time and you can change them. I mean, you know, all those endless conversations about how is it best to work together? You know, do you work in cafes? Do you work in offices? Do you, you know, I think that it is a bit of a... In, in terms of buildings, it's interesting because as a curator, you're working with an exhibition straight space and that you're confined by that. But then you go off and you're influenced by a totally different building that you're working in. And I think one of the difficulties is you're not spending enough time in the gallery space, not being there and watching how audiences interact with things and being a visitor in a way. Mm. So... so Speaking of which, I mean, do you get to go out, you know, I mean, apart from, you know, of course, ACME, but other institutions and places and visit and, you know, go through it with a really critical eye? Yeah, it's interesting. I found that um, as Australians, I don't know how you feel about this, but we tend to be very hard on ourselves about how we present work. Where, you know, everything's always totally seamless in terms of presentation. And I always find, particularly if you go to France, Everything, like, walls are half-painted and videos kind of go on and off. Mm. So I've become super critical. It's really hard for me to go somewhere and go, oh, you know, they haven't done that properly. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah, I think that's just a... I, maybe that's a very sort of... Particularly being in a very new institution, our expectations of ourselves are very high because we're trying to prove who we are and why we're here. There's a, there's a question bursting yes. from the audience. What do you actually get out of sitting down and reading the obituaries? Just, <laughs> just, just a sense that you're glad to be alive or what? No, it's this anxiety that if I don't, I'll miss something that I should have known. Or actually, to be totally honest, that somebody will die because I didn't read them. Does that make any sense? And in fact, I saw somebody's name that was a friend of, I thought was a friend of my partner's. It was a reasonably common name, but I said to him, you know, I think so-and-so's died. And then he saw him like two days later and said, oh, look, I hear that, you know, very pleased you're alive. But yeah, it's just, a, you know, it's just checking in. It was very interesting. When I did my first Adelaide Festival in 1998, I really tried to think of anything that would be absolutely universal to, to anybody that wanted to come to the, the festival, whether they had money or they didn't have money or whatever. And I thought that in the end there were just a couple of things. One was funerals, and I thought that might be a bit grim, but the other one was weddings. 
And so in the end, what I did was I had a program called Every Night a Wedding and we had people get married every night in the rotunda and some were real and some were fake and the press used to come and review the weddings and there'd be a notice in the paper the next day saying, oh, the bride made a great speech and it was lovely and there, you know, there was a gypsy wedding. and a, But it was very, very interesting really trying to come down to what we genuinely all shared and even though our rituals around fun funerals and weddings are very, very different, it is something that we, as it were, celebrate, isn't it? It's, it's every time. I mean, particularly in Indigenous culture, it's a fact of life, isn't it? The, yeah, yeah. the death and sorry business and all those things are terribly important to the way of life. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's so diverse too. I mean, you know, there's ceremonies where, you know, you have to... I mean, with my family in my area, you know, if someone passes away, you can't speak their name for a period of at least 12 months. You yeah. have to cover photos of that person so that transition to the, the next you know, life is uh, not inhibited and so, but yeah, there's other areas where, you know, it can be up to three years or women, you know, uh, will uh, hit themselves. Yeah. Yeah, for you know, so... Yeah, it's very diverse. And the implications of that around the architecture of that ritual, of the funeral ritual, is amazing too, isn't it? Mm. Because I think things, like, as in weddings, I think, I think things are changing. I think we're in a transition period where everybody thought, certainly in the Christian religion, you absolutely have to go into the church and do it in that very confined, dark space. As with weddings, you go into a church. Now more people are in, you know, more inclined to connect with the land, to do more things outside, mm. to do it in a beautiful landscape, somehow to connect the big moments moments of life and death with a natural landscape. I think that's a big change that we've had. Having said that, I am quite anxious that I can't have a funeral in a church and I've been trying to find a way that I could because I've come from a secular background and I've discovered that now to get into a church to be have your funeral is quite hard, so I have thought about how you could do that. How you can do it not in a church. No, in a church, because I can't get into a church. You can't get in. You can't no, make because, a booking. No, well, if you're not... <laughs> religious now, oh, it is quite hard to have a funeral in a church. And so, having been to a few recently, I thought they do that quite well. Well, good luck with well, that. Yeah, no, I know, <laughs> I know. I've worked that. I mean, it's really any ritual that is ancient, I think, it often has ironed out some of the bumps. So I don't care which church. Okay, that's good. I'm glad you're liberal about like that. A few 50s here. Yeah, yeah, house. whatever. Um, ladies and gentlemen, please thank Rico Rini. Thank you. And, uh, and last but definitely not least, a uh, designer of exhibitions to a designer for the stage. Sarah's going to interview Richard Roberts. Welcome him. sure whether we should start with your personal rituals or the rituals of theatre and uh, how as a designer okay why don't we start with the rituals of theatre yeah. um, I've just recently done a, a production um, of Fiddler on the Roof yeah. which is playing up at the Princess tickets at Ticket yeah. playing till March or <laughs> I drive past um, and it was an interesting project because it, it, it happened incredibly quickly um, yeah as commercial productions often do when the money all falls into place yeah. and suddenly it's all on. And so there was very little time to think about things. I had to just kind of get on with yeah. the design of it. A very shortened rehearsal period. A director that I worked with a lot. Yeah. We're very experienced with each other working on shows. And a very compressed 
period in the theatre uh, for all sorts of reasons. And so there wasn't a lot of time to think about it, and it all happened in an incredible kind of hurry, and then suddenly I found myself sitting in the first audience. And honestly, it felt like that. It felt like we'd been in a whirlwind, and then suddenly the lights went down, the band struck up, and the showcloth pulled out. And it stars Anthony Warlow, you know, who's got a big following. And I had this, it had not occurred to me until that moment, like the audience immediately, well, apart from the fact that as it pulled out and he was there, they could not stop themselves from applauding. And from that moment on, he had them completely in his control. It was unbelievable to watch. I mean, he's got a fabulous voice. He's a very good actor. And he was in a role that actually a lot of people said, oh, Anthony Wormo playing Tevye, it's a bit of a kind of stretch. But, you know, in, 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 it became very clear very quickly that he, he was going to be good in this and, and he had it in control and he had the audience in control. And it kind of made me think as I was sitting there, you know, I've just spent all this time figuring out about a set and wrestling with the lighting designer over it and all of that sort of stuff. And I, it occurred to me in that moment when, when Anthony had them, even in the first performance, the never, he, you know, first performance with the first audience, he, he was communing with them. And I thought, that's what my job is, is to make his, is to help him connect with that group of people that, you know, I don't know, the princess seat's about 1,600 people or something. That's a lot of people, and they're all packed in there, and they're and he's kind of got this amazing relationship with them. And I, and I thought, um, in the end, that's fundamentally what it's all about. The re relationship between an, a performer on, performer in his space, connecting with all of those people out there, in, in the case of the Princess Theatre, in the dark. And, and that my role is in a sense, a sort of secondary role to that ritual that he is in the process of uh, enacting. And, and I'm, I'm perfectly happy with that. I, I have, could I, I, I should just add that, you know, I have been in situations over the years with directors where they've gone, oh, God, usually not particularly um, sympathetic to the role of the designer. The director will say, wouldn't it be great if you didn't have to have designers? You know, like all you really need is a sort of open space and, and, and an actor. And I, I kind of get what they're saying. They're, they're saying the same thing that I've just said about Anthony. But the reality is you cannot have no design. No, it's like, not as simple. Sometimes design is invisible and that's its... Well, it's even then... Well, I guess it's maybe it's less present. Or, less, or it's about supporting something and people don't pick that apart. Yeah. They don't see those different elements. Well, somebody in this room today decided to put this here and put those chairs yeah, there yeah. rather than the other way and around. I don't know why they did it. I mean, well, it's probably so that, that you get a good nicer. view of the taco yeah. truck. <laughs> but, but, you know, all of those, they're all choices. They're just, I mean, yeah. e even to go into a village square and draw a circle in the sand like Peter Brook did, mm. you have to choose what diameter circle and mm you know, where's the circle going to go and what tree you're going to put it under and all of that. So there, there are design decisions whether you like it or not. Do you think that those decisions or the way you would design something would be different for a different type of audience? For a younger audience who, you know, I suppose do the um. whole... 
the way that stories are told. I am particularly interested in how this idea of sort of video gaming and something which is more immersive. I, how... I, 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 I don't know. I've heard other people say this as well, and I, I, I actually think... I think I'd be sunk, actually, if I tried to kind of play to an audience. Do you know what I mean? Yep. In, in a sense, I think... Uh, you can just be kind of... So someone rings me up and says, oh, would you design Fiddler on the Roof? It's the Princess Theatre. It's opening in yep. three months' time. Then away you go. And I, and I think if you... Uh, I think if you tried to second-guess what they wanted, I'm not sure that... I don't, I don't think I mean it so much in what they want. It's just different ways of... I suppose if you start theatre design from outside of... The theatre, people are coming in, there's a journey that they go through as they sit down or don't sit down, it might oh, be yes. the experience that they're walking through, that working on a project which isn't Fiddler on the Roof, which hasn't been told numerous yeah. times before, how would you approach that? How would you... Like a brand new work? Like, or, yeah. Oh, I've done plenty of that, yeah. actually, and that, and that is, uh, in fact, actually, exactly, pr the project before yeah. the, that was a brand new piece that... MTC commission from Steve mm. Vizard and Paul Grabowski, mm. and that's a very that's a completely. Yeah. I mean, that's a more, more stressful. Yeah. Everybody's there's a kind of element of anxiety in that that kind of project because nothing's known. Are the but, personal um, rituals different, or the working di rituals different for that than say um, you've oh, got actually, the phone well, call? Well, look, interestingly, I mean, we talked about David talked about. You know, not going into that building over there, and and I have spent a lot of my life over in that building, and and various kind of proscenium arch theatres around, and and with big companies like MTC and and Sydney Theatre Company and etc. And and I was thinking actually there are some rituals that do kind of happen every time, and and every now and then a director comes and breaks that convention, and there's great shock and horror, but it. But sometimes it's greeted with great sense of, oh, thank God someone's finally done that. You know, like one of the big rituals in the world that I work in is the first reading, you know, and day one comes and it's actually a very tense time for the designer because day one comes and you've got this big table and a big cast sitting around and it's usually the time when the, that group of people who are going to go on this journey together have first come together. You know, they might have known that they'll have rung around and found out who's, who else is in the cast. And, you know, they'll know who the, the various people like the designers and the director and so on are. But it's usually the first time that they all get together. And, 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 and at that moment, um, it's the first time that the director will say, OK, let's talk about this play that we're all going to spend the next... Well, for me, five weeks. For them, sometimes several months yeah. because they're going to act in it after I leave yeah. on opening night. And and for a design and often what will happen in that first reading is you'll have a, a reveal of the design. You know, I I've kind of worked on this. So design you've done quite a lot of work before they for quite yeah. a, quite some time prior to that. And and that can be a quite stressful moment, mm. you know, when you kind of and, and some directors really sadistically uh, put a kind of cloth over the model so that at particular moment they'll say and now we'll look at the design and they'll pull the cloth off and m all I can do is look around at the eyes of all the actors and see who's reaching for their mobile phones speed dialing their agents. I'm out of here! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because actually what's very interesting about that moment though is be 
that a model, and I, I'm really into the model. Yep. That's my kind of I like a model. kind of central document for a design. But a model is an incredibly expressive thing, and and in that split second that the cloth comes off, an enormous amount of information is imparted to all the people that see it. You know, you, you learn about colour, space, textures. You know, we're doing Fiddler on the Roof, you know, the cloth comes off and there's a sort of sea of mud and a half curtain, you know, like, oh, that's some kind of fiddler you're going to do there. You know, a lot of information is imparted in a very quick time. Having said that, I mean, I actually... Sometimes it gets broken. I was really lucky that a friend and colleague of mine, Kate Cherry, we've done a lot of work together, she rang me one day. I was living in Hong Kong at this stage. And she said, would you do a production of Glen Gary, Glen Ross with her? And I said, yeah, sure. And she said, look, I've got a slight problem with the rehearsal period. It's normally, in a state company, they'll rehearse over like four weeks and then get it into the theatre. Kate, for various reasons, wanted to split the rehearsal period and have two weeks in January, two in May, and then go into the theatre. And I thought, oh, that's interesting, you know. And it was very kind of prosaic, not poetic reasons. Um, like her work schedule yeah. somewhere else. And so in the first two weeks, I turned up... And normally, we'd have that first reading. But we didn't have that, because I didn't even have a design. And in two weeks, I designed the play. Then we all went away. I finished the design, print, presented it to the company, and then we all reconvened in May and kind of whacked it on. And it was a great experience. Well. And we all said, let's do that again. Mm. So that was a kind of new ritual that that had been, you know, she had split it. She had broken that one that we're all used to. So, so before you get to that moment of the reading, is there something that you do with the director? That I had a conversation with... I interviewed Janet Patterson, who's a film... and She's an art director and yep. costume designer, oh, yes, about yep. when her and Jane Campion and Jan Chapman worked on Bright Star. And the first thing that they did, they were the sort of three core team, and they went and had poetry lessons together. Yep. And I thought, you know, as somebody who doesn't from, come from a costume background, I was amazed that somebody, that one, that Janice Patterson's role was so key to the beginning of it, yep. but that where they started was this poetry lesson. Now, it made sense, if yeah. people have seen Bright Star, it makes sense that that's what they, they were getting in their headspace together. Is there something like that that you do particularly when you work with somebody you've worked with before, you've got a relationship with, that's your kind of starting point? Yeah, um, yes. I mean, like, for instance, I've, I've done a lot of work with a director called Wesley Enoch, mm. and Wesley and I have done... We will always... We'll always circle around the, the what we're supposed to be doing. Yeah, yeah. In other words, avoid it. Yes. Um, and we'll, I can remember we came into NGV once, we, we had a meeting and we were supposed to be doing, he said, oh, let's just go into the gallery and have a wander around. And the interesting thing, what happens is you're doing this wander around with absolutely no intent. And, of course, in the conversation... It happens. It kind of suddenly clicks and then you go, oh, let's go back to have a coffee, we'll talk yeah. about that. Yeah. So that that's kind of something that I do with Wesley yeah. a lot. It's not always NGV, you know, no. it might be going to the movies or... Or actually, we were doing the Sapphires um, about 10 years ago. And he said, oh, come on, let's go to Fiddler on the Roof, actually, this time <laughs> with, with Topol. And, uh, and I think we kind of had a really great conversation at the interval 
about our play, yeah. about our project, you know. And so it, with him, it's that sort of thing. So find some outside yeah. influence. It's different with every director, though. You know, the, the little ritual that you have. Like, I do a lot of work... I've done a lot of work with Roger Hodgman, mm -hmm. Roger, who's directed this fiddler. Mm -hmm. And Roger and I have a completely different approach to it than, than Wesley and I. Um, so in a way, it's about the relationship very and much. how you... That ritual together rather than a... Very much. Yeah. And, and that's what's quite tricky when you work with someone for the very first yeah. time. You have no, you have no rituals mm. with this person. So you've got to kind of start making some. Mm. And actually, you know, I've worked with directors where from both sides it becomes apparent quite quickly that this will be the only project. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And there's nothing wrong with that. There's yeah. absolutely nothing wrong with that. That's like normal. Um, it didn't work, do you know? No. Well, it would or, be... Not necessarily didn't work even. It would be difficult if you kept working with people that you had to keep working with. Yeah, definitely. It would be too busy. I mean, the lucky thing that I... Somewhere along the lines, failure was mentioned at some stage. I can't quite remember the... Yes, at the beginning. Was, and I was thinking, actually, like, I was lucky in my career mm -hmm. to be at a stage in the Australian theatre where actually failure was OK. Like, I was a resident, young resident designer in a company in South Australia, and I was telling someone about a massive mm. issue I had with a set early on in my career, but I was a resident, you moved on to the next one, and you took the failure that, that, that that's not available to young aspiring designers these days. It's a bit of a worry. I find it interesting to think about you two um, designing for an audience that's going to move around. Yes. and designing for an audience that's yep. probably mainly, in your case, yep. going to sit down. Yep. Do you think that affects the way you approach things? I mean, if you suddenly had to design for something where people were just going to be seated um, to view something, would it be a different approach? Richard, similarly, if you suddenly thought you were designing some sort of transition play, would it affect the rituals yep. of your practice? I think one of the difficult things about the shows that I work on at the moment is that I actually do have to design things for people who sit down for a certain amount of time and then get up and move somewhere and sit down again. And one of the things that's very different about designing moving image exhibitions is that the connections, the sight lines that you would make if you weren't working with video, you can't make because we have to contain sound and light. So all those connections that you get in a, say, a traditional painting show, of I can see that painting and that one over there, and that mm. is a beautiful connection that you make. You don't make when you're working largely with moving image. So I think that's why I'm quite interested in theatre design, yeah. because I'm really interested in the ways of which people are still and have a particular experience, but then get up and walk somewhere and have another yeah. experience. I mean, I think what's quite interesting is that to design for a mobile audience, yeah. in a sense, your audience is getting a, a more democratic deal about out of it than the audience that I designed for. Because actually, you know, up there at the Princess Theatre, literally 1,600 people, every single person is having a slightly different experience yes. of what they're seeing. Because it's, you know, it's pretty fractional between that seat and that seat, but, but it's not, profound yeah. between that one and that one. And, and of course, you know, in in the undemocratic world of the Princess Theatre, you've got A reserve, B reserve and C reserve, and then it's D reserve sitting behind a great big pole. And yeah. and and the, so it's less, uh, you know, your world's much and fairer. Oh, no, I'm quite jealous of your world. <laughs> I mean, I think they have a lot to learn from each other, particularly as 
exhibition audiences do seem to be growing. Like people yeah. are very interested in going to exhibitions and it's become this sort of blockbuster experience. But the demands on what people want from that are changing. Yeah. So I think that the theatrical experience is quite interesting for mm. and, uh, the, and the other one that I... Because I went to that Ori Kelly one yeah. recently, which is a great little exhibition. And, and it was funny because I wanted to just sort of... I wanted to go there, then there, then there, and then there was a guy in front of me who was a bit slow. He's slow, exactly. And I was yes. kind of like, and I thought, we, we really do get here the the ritual of the queue, yeah. don't we? And as they do in Hong Kong, where yeah. they've been living for the last couple of years, they understand the queue brilliantly, <laughs> but they don't in Shanghai. Or, you know. <laughs> it's a little bit, little bit like the Joan Rivers monologue about you know being behind old people in supermarket queues. I hate old oh. people. It takes a while, etc. We should move on. Please, yeah. thanks, Sarah Tutton. Yeah. And now Richard gets to interview me. Oh. Yay! <laughs> yeah, but is there going to be another Robin that can intervene? No, I can intervene there. for myself. Oh, good. It's yeah, all so you're both, yeah. <laughs> um, well, I was thinking, Robin, that maybe... You, you, you just sort of mentioned it briefly before Adelaide Festival, and you've obviously had a lot of experience with arts festivals around Australia, and they obviously have some kind of connection with ritual. Maybe they came from ritual originally. I want, do you want to just talk about that? Yeah, look, I always think that it's good to go back to the arcane sense of the festival. And I think I, I would, um, would summarise that by saying it's an opportunity for people to gather en masse um, to get, get out of it, that is to go beyond what their daily lives normally are and to come out... And this is, the, this is if you really want the essential festival experience and to... Um, compress a lot of experience into a small time frame and come out at the other end absolutely exhausted, overstuffed. If it's a food festival, you've eaten too much. If it's a wine festival, you've... You know, if it's a film festival, you come out blinking after two weeks. It's absolutely um, about excess, mm. coming out exhausted but somehow changed a little bit. And I, I feel that the nearer festivals get to that, the better. Yep. So there's... A, there's Every now and then there's a problem for me, although I know this happens all the time, but if you're doing something like the Melbourne Festival, which I did, or the Adelaide Festival, you know that because of money and other things, some people will only come and see one or two things because that's all they can afford. But in fact, the festival experience is best when it's just almighty and you go to everything. And, and kind of there are economic inhibitors to that, which is why in some ways... Um, more community traditional festivals still express that a bit better. I think of the festival in Basel called the Fasnacht, which is a, a Lenten festival that I've only experienced once and always wanted to go back to. Mm. And uh, it's, just, it's just before Lent begins and everybody gets up and it really is like the, the whole city of Basel is up at four in the morning and it was snowing the year I saw it and everybody is gradually cramming towards the centre and suddenly you hear the sound of fife and drum bands with new compositions every year from all outside the city and they're all... Wow. 
They're all, and they've all got their own rhythm. And they all start walking in and all the participants have huge uh, illuminated hats on and they all start walking into the city and by the time sun up comes, so it's about 7.30, 7 or 7.30, this happens in March, depending on Easter, um, by the time nobody can move, you're just all crammed in. And then after that, there's only, uh, I think, brown lentil soup is all you're allowed to eat. And then the three, the three days proceed with different... There's a political day where uh, um, big carts go through the city and they throw out material. There is a kids' day where um, some say it explains why Swiss children can be so polite for the rest of the year. A kid can come up and put confetti down your neck or abuse you and you're, an adult is not allowed to retaliate. Um, so this is... And in those days you see babies in pushes with little moustaches and drums and one night uh, one of the people that we, we were sort of squatting this place and a guy was out very uh, late at night about four and he said he saw somebody in a wonderful harlequin costume alone belting the hell out of a drum I mean going for it up a lane and he stopped and observed and the person stopped just at that moment took off the hat and it was a woman probably in her wow. 70s and they say that in these days bankers disappear from their homes and just and they're allowed to they go off and so people are allowed to as it were misbehave for four days they used to traditionally have a masked ball and there were many many uh, wonderful because people would cross gender in the masked ball and there were many tales of people who ended up in other people's beds of all sorts after the, the snow? Uh, sadly, this no longer is, is goes it on. It's an old festival. It's a very, very old and, festival, and, and, and it's the beginning of Lent. That's all. It's a beginning when you've got to uh, starve yourself of a whole lot of stuff, so you can do anything you like for these yeah. three or four days, and then you've got to be very prim. But that sort of typifies the idea of the real festival. We, we all know that arts festivals now are more or less a wonderful marketing opportunity. Yeah. The stats show that people will take more risks on, on different and new stuff if you put it under the festival banner. If you put on a weird show um, by itself, people are unlikely to turn up. But in the festival context, they will. it's a very effective marketing banner. But I like those festivals that are still ones where you just get completely out of it. And of course, as the artistic director, because you get to see yeah. absolutely Absolutely everything. You come out at the end just absolutely drained, but somehow with a new view of life. Do you think that, that that experience is available in the festivals in Australia these days? Yeah, yeah I think I think some are. I mean, I guess I guess something like White Nights does that in a way. Although White Nights has got a there's a there's a there's a creep and crawl at the moment everywhere throughout the world of eventism. Yeah. Um, in fact, there is a department in St Margaret's in Edinburgh called, run by an American, and it's the Department of Eventology. Um, <laughs> Which he swears is a term invented by the Japanese, but I don't believe him. Eventology. But the thing is, events and numbers, like as long as you've got massive numbers, then it's easy to get a lot of money. Yeah. I mean, millions and millions of dollars for a White Nights or a Vivid or something like that. That proves that hundreds of thousands of people get out in the streets. It's much harder to get money for art. And by that, I mean the intimate experience yeah. of art. And so there is a, there is a sort of... Um, a sense of ritual. I mean, I would say in Melbourne, White Night for many people is becoming a great ritual. Um, and and 
the very fact that people want to get out and congregate in big numbers yeah. is a good thing and it's also an antidote to screen culture so everybody's absorbed very on on their devices and not being social so it's great that people do want to get out but there is a there is a bit of a um, a counterbalance for me in the fact that as long as it's got lots and lots of bums on seats you can get lots of government money and otherwise it's still a really really hard ask but I think those things are possible I mean again place often has has an incredible, and this 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 I think links to the idea of um, pilgrimage and ritual. Mm. So the idea that a place will actually dictate the experience you have. So, for instance, in September, I performed at the Port Ferry Spring Music Festival. Now, to get to Port Ferry, you've really got to make an effort. You've got to drive down there. But as it happens, the classical music program has been done really well in the past few years by Anna Goldsworthy and has now been taken over by Ian Grandich, who is the new artistic director. So you see all the stuff in... It's a tiny town, and you see it in this hall or that restaurant or that... So the idea of actually using the town somehow qualifies the experience. And for many people, certain um, wonderful festivals become a ritual experience. If we looked at the Edinburgh Festival, for instance, Jonathan Mills has said that um, part of the Edinburgh Festival's economy depends on the enormous... I mean, there's thousands of American tourists who book to go to the classical music program every year, which is why it remains a strong classical and a very good classical music program, because those Americans say... like the French going to Avignon, for instance, every year at this time we're going to take our holidays and we're going to go to that festival for that particular experience. And and that's where I think things become ritualised. You know, um, I wouldn't miss this. I've got friends who would never miss the Sydney Film Festival or the Melbourne Festival. So I do think that those those opportunities are there. And and to make it or acknowledge its place where it is. I mean, I remember the, the Melbourne Festival used to have it, you know, in those Truscott festivals where there was it was completely unavoidable that um, St Kilda Road Everybody talks know, about that when Truscott with, sort of did with, with fancy stuff over the road he did arches or something really. yeah. you know, uh, you yeah. know, paper lanterns that inevitably yeah. in Melbourne it would rain and they'd be tattered and sort of <laughs> sodden by the end of the festival yeah. but there was an amazing kind of sense of Melbourne this, particularly this precinct here, kind of transforming itself. Yeah, I guess I guess that is part of the, the idea of place. I find very significant, really and, and I actually think that artistic directors that um, neglect to acknowledge the place uh, do do so at their own peril. Yeah. Well, I really think that the best thing to do is is to look at a city, see what it's got, see what it's made of, and see if you can get something that really mm. applies itself to that place, making it unique, which is why it was interesting doing uh, 10 days on the island in yeah. Tasmania, try and make a festival that's unique to that place. I think the Darwin Festival mm. is doing a little bit of that now with Andrew Ross because he's got very uh, strong links with um, uh, Southeast Asia and that proximity. Yeah. I think he'll do well with that. And in a sense, a fair Festival is a kind of mega performance of a city, in a sense, isn't it? And 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 the the, the festivals that retreat indoors into the art centres, uh, in a sense, the ones that don't take advantage of that. Yeah, I think know. more and more. I mean, I mean, also what we're finding is the spread of things like a European capital of culture, which does celebrate the city, or what we were able to do in the centenary of Canberra was actually celebrate the city mm. as a whole. And I think more and more places are taking that on. Always things like Olympic Games and Commonwealth Games and those big, those very big events that always have a sort of 
a, a cultural bit on them. Mm. Um, they tend to look at the city as a whole, and I think more and more people are, people mm. are starting to do that, mm. is actually look at the host city and make sure that the host city is well expressed yeah. through the festival, and I think that's very well. And I, you know, in a sense, as much as one can create ritual behaviour out of that, I think it's a very good thing. Yeah. Um, so from the mega performance with, with, you know, thousands of actors and performances in all these various theatres and so on, and you sort of like a megalomaniac at the top, sort of <laughs> the puppeteer of the art, artistic director of that, let's go to Robin standing on a stage with her voice and an audience. Mm. And I'd be kind of just interested to hear, you know, I was talking about Anthony before and his where everything fell away and it was just about him and them. It's a, it's a wonderful feeling and for the last, you know, 20 or something years when I haven't had to sing for my supper every night, um, the pleasure now of getting on the stage is unbelievable. I just feel it and, you know, because I didn't train in any performance, I learnt all my stuff from my father. Um, my father was a stand-up comedian and a, and a singer and a compere and, um, you know, here we go, I'm just looking more like my father. I'm, <laughs> I'm a compere and a singer and not quite a stand-up comedian. Comedian, I'm glad to say. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I learnt from him and what I learnt from him essentially and from a number of other uh, hoofers, comedians, vaudevillians, really I was in this lucky page, I learnt something about timing and I learnt how to work an audience. And that's still what works for me both as a singer and as an artistic advisor or director is that I can speak to an audience and I'm very sensitive to that. Um, and that's a, that's a really wonderful feeling, that connection when you know that somehow you're connecting to the audience. It's just fantastic. And it's not necessarily about the ego that, that, that rises when you get applause. It's something more human mm -hmm. than that. As to the rituals that go with it, um, they're extreme. Um, I mean, I really learnt this when I did A Star Is Torn for something like four years and in London's West End for... I don't know how somebody like Anthony does it time and again yeah. because a year almost did me in physically absolutely fine but I got very bored. But the ritual was amazing in the West End. I mean, I used to walk from Primrose Hill where I lived through uh, Primrose Hill and through Regent's Park into the West Ends. That was about an hour and a half's walk at four o'clock. I'd get there at 5.30. I would start the physical warm-up. I'd start the vocal warm-up so that when you hit the stage at eight o'clock, you can work for two hours and pack, you know, a month's energy yep. into that thing on stage so people think you're superhuman. After that, there would maybe be one to two hours when I could actually talk to people, have supper, go home, sleep for 10 hours, uh, 11 o'clock the next day I would start to get it up and I would have about an hour in the afternoon to do interviews and other business. And that went on for a year. Yeah, and it. and it's, it's just, if it's, like, it's like being a marathon performer. Yeah. You absolutely have to stick to it. And some of that, even though I'm not doing those marathons anymore, when I have to do a two-hour concert, which I'm doing in two weeks' time in Canberra, um, I have to really start way back. I have to say to various teams, I'm not talking to you, don't bring me, I won't talk, I'm going to stay quiet, I've got my ginger drink and my lemon drink next to me. I mean, it's about physical preparation, but it is also ritualistic. How, how do you um, figure out those rituals? Like, where, where do they come from? How, how do you learn a ritual? Is, that, is it uniquely the Robin Archer ritual and... Or, do you know, where I think it from? is. I mean, I remember first working with John Gaydon, the actor, and he just used to lie on his back in the dressing room quite a lot and do weird things. I mean, um, 
<laughs> Not with dogs, I'm glad to say. Was, you know, he, he would he would make funny noises and do all those things. And I think it, you just you just collect a heap of things that work for you. Yeah. I think that's I think that's really the way it yeah. works best. Is that you collect a heap of stuff, you test a few things. That's what works for you, and you get a timing and a rhythm, and you repeat it. I don't have any weird stuff like the pianist Roger Woodward, who, um, bless him, once thought that he'd been hexed on the street before a concert and wouldn't start before they surrounded the piano with garlic. So the um, I don't have those kinds of rituals. I'm not sp- spooked out or spiritual. They're more like physical preparation that an athlete yeah. would do. But you know, we we hear about tennis players over here who really do have very specific things that they must do before they walk on the court and that kind of solo effort out on a tennis court amazes me yeah. how people can hang on to their nerve for five hours and do what they do is amazing well they must um, get into some kind of zone I suppose and and the process is that they how do you do that you know yeah, what is the process? actually David David Pledger and I did a wonderful day at the Australian Institute of Sport talking about the relationship between sport and art. And we had Robert Di Costello there, the great marathon runner. He was great about the zone. Yeah. He said it's exactly the same um, in, in long-distance running, that you've just got to get yourself into exactly the same zone as we would recognise as performers um, and, and just go into it yeah. and perform from there. Thank you for that interview, Richard. I'm going to make a few. And please thank Richard Roberts. Um, and I'm just going to make a few concluding remarks about a very widespread kind of conversation about ritual. I think one of the things that, that fetched up just then was about ritual and gender. Um, we had a conversation in South America last week where we were talking about the, the steps that the, uh, the, the, the chosen victim had to go, the sacrificial victim had to go up the steps and, you know, the chacmal is waiting in Mexico for the heart to be dug out and placed on the chacmal and the fact that the sacrificial victim would get a lot of treats before um, he went up the steps. He'd get quite a lot of peyote and good drugs and lots of virgins. And somebody said, I wonder if the virgins had any choice about that. So it's very interesting that the that gender around ritual is a very, very interesting thing because sometimes um, the women uh, are, are, are not on the best end of that wicket. But I think it's a really interesting thing to discuss. And of course, it brings up the question then about the gender of architecture, which people have been debating for ages and ages, the same as women musicians. Do women musicians actually write different music from men? Is there is there such a thing as women's music? Um, is there such a thing as women's architecture? And I bring you back to Margaret Schutelohotsky, who, after having devoted her life to making great buildings, kindergartens, kitchens, all that kind of thing, was actually then pigeonholed. And she got almost no commission ever to design a private house. She was always pigeonholed, including when she w- went to work in Stalin's Russia in the very early years. Um, she was still commissioned to do kindergarten gardens, schoolrooms and those things. So the whole gender nature of ritualisation and architecture is an interesting one. I also thought what was interesting that came up a couple of times is the value of certain rituals. Even though rituals have been implanted in our society for so many years, are they actually still worth preserving? Are there ones that we should say? And, you know, there is, there is at the moment a certain ritual around some sports which are probably best done away with and they've probably been developing ever since young 
and it seems to be, forgive me, it seems to be young men who very quickly get lots and lots of money and suddenly decide they can do anything and have anything. And there is a sort of ritual complicity about their behaviour and that's coming to light all over the place just at the moment. Maybe there is some kind of ritual behaviour that we have to scotch. In that case, are there new rituals growing all the time? Are there new collective behaviours and repetitions that we could we could really helpfully and positively develop so that we have a world that we share and that we enjoy sharing rituals rather than having to be um, imposed upon with ones that perhaps we don't agree with and could well be done without. Um, you know, it sort of does raise the question a little bit about, about same-sex marriage. Um, you know, to some extent, I, I understood Julia Gillard when she said, well, I've never believed in marriage and so um, what, I don't understand why people of same sex would want to get married. And to some extent, when I was growing up, um, you know, uh, being gay was a, a bit of a protest. Um, there was a sort of uh, revolutionary sense about, I don't have to get married, that's good, I can actually have a revolt against this and this is the one of the ways to express it. And so I think that there's a very interesting debate around that. On the other hand, I guess that one, one has to say as to that ritual of marriage that uh, if we are to have equality, um, then anybody who still wants to get married, whatever their persuasion, ought to be allowed to do so. I think it's probably as simple as that. But it does for me raise some really interesting questions um, about uh, one of the avenues of revolution being cut off to some people now because being gay is no longer extraordinary. It's a, it's, I did ask one young gay woman who was interviewing me in Canberra and say, how do you rebel these days? Because this was my pathway of, of rebellion. How do you do it this way? And she didn't actually have very many good answers for me, to tell you the truth. Um, I think uh, the other thing that's been crossing my mind through the whole discussion is that, you know, and we, we Gabriella touched on it, um, some rituals are superb to be part of and we love them. Um, some others are extremely alienating and controlling. And I would say that in some ways you could say that also about the architecture that arises from many rituals. Some are very imposing and controlling. Um, and that leads me to say that that's why something like the M Pavilion is such a success, because it's very open and it's very new. It comes from a new and fresh commissioning project. And here we are kind of open to do absolutely anything. I think it's one of the great successes um, and I think it's a privilege to, be, to have been able to sit here and have a conversation. I wonder how changed that conversation might have been if we'd been in a darkened hall on a day like this. There is something about the openness that we've got art institutions, traffic people, families, the river, everything about this space allows our conversation and our discussion to be so open. Um, and I think that's a really great note to finish on. Um, the next session will be starting, I think, at five o'clock and it's transformation and it's going to be led by Rose Hiscock, who is recently here from the powerhouse in Sydney but heading up the new science gallery at the Melbourne University. So please stick around or come back at five o'clock. Thanks very much for this afternoon.